Right, I'm not sure whose awful music that was anyway. Um, Gull, fueling your mission all year round, bringing you this show, Mark Watson. I'm not sure. What, 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 what was the music? What is, what is the music? It's called Vampires yep. by Jukes. You okay. can blame your protege for that one, old Sammy Hewitt. Are they good? Yeah. Do you, do you not like this tune, Watto? I don't know. I'm a bit old school. I think I, I need to broaden my horizons a little bit. Hey, I'm usually normally sort of used to coming in with just some sort of classic rock. Yeah, and there's some Pearl Jam on the way there for you. There is some Pearl Jam. We like yes. Pearl Jam. We do yes. like our Pearl Jam. You well? I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, good, good, good. Been for a swim? Uh, no, what did I do today? No, I haven't done anything today. I had to shoot out to my little house in Muriwai. Um, do a little piece for Television New Zealand, actually. Um, so we've just been white-stickered, so we're allowed back in. Fantastic but, news. Yeah, it's sort of... It isn't, it isn't. Yes, definitely. Considering um, circumstance as well. Well, you're sort of in, but a lot of people around you aren't. And I say this, you move back into your house, but you don't feel like you've moved back into your home. Because Mirawai is very much around a community. So, yeah, sort of um, mixed feelings around the whole thing. It's been a very, very t- difficult time out at the West Coast Beach. Anyway, we're here to talk sport. Telephone number this hour is 0800 150811. 0800 I've um, got a couple of things that I do want to talk about, but I was just rolling through different websites as you do, and I just came across the article on stuff regarding the Chiefs this weekend who take on the Melbourne Rebels. Four All Blacks are being rested. I'm just over this. It also includes... Damien McKenzie, who wasn't an All Black last year. But Sam Kane, Brad Weber, Brody Retallick and Damien McKenzie have been rested. Crusaders did a similar thing last week against the Fiji and Drua, and we know how that played out. We as fans tune in because we want to watch the best players play. When is New Zealand rugby going to actually realise that it's not just about the All Blacks? That putting all your eggs in one basket once every four years is detrimental to the game? I'm sick and tired of being told how hard the rugby players do it, how tough it is, and how and why we have to wrap them in cotton wool constantly. Please, somebody jump on the phone and tell me how resting our All Blacks helped us last year against Ireland. Helped us against Australia, South Africa. The year before that, how it helped us in 2019 when we lost a semi-final to England at the World Cup. Have they not realised that crowd numbers are down, television viewers viewing is down, it's no longer a default setting to watch the rugby, it's no longer compulsory viewing. I can't think of another league anywhere in the world where your best players are rested. Some of these guys are getting paid up to a million dollars a year and they're tired. Never heard so much rubbish in my life. Not good enough. There's a part of me that hopes the Chiefs lose this weekend because of it. You as fans, don't bother tuning in. New Zealand rugby, they don't respect you enough. They want you to pay, but they want to give you an inferior product. 0800 150 811 is the number. Love to get your thoughts. Feel free, phone me. Tell me I'm wrong. It seems to be a bit of a bugbear of mine. I seem to go on this a lot. But every week I tune in to different websites to find out who's going to start, 
for these super franchises and every week there seems to be All Blacks resting. I mean, you look at the Highlanders. Ethan De Groot finally gets to come back. Aaron Smith finally gets to come back. They're not good enough to have their All Blacks missing key games. We've got so many sports now that kids can choose to play. We've got so much sport on TV that we can watch. We've got less and less time. So we start narrowing our options down to what is going to give us the greatest level of satisfaction. Rugby are just so arrogant, they think it's always going to be them. Super Rugby kicks off. You make sure for the first four or five weeks you've got your best players on the field from day one. You don't take games and have a round in Melbourne and try and somehow believe that you're going to make Melbourne a rugby city when it's never going to happen. Who are these clowns that are employed that make these decisions? You know, I go through the boards of New Zealand Rugby. I go through board members of certain organisations. I look at CEOs. I look at their CVs. And I think, how do you guys get these jobs? How have you got where you've got when you can't just see the obvious, when you're so removed from the average public see? Anyway, 0800 150 is the number. Look, I haven't had a real opportunity to be on air for a while. New Zealand cricket have just pulled off two of the greatest test match victories in history. Once-in-a-lifetime type tests. The second test against England. Even the English said it was one of the greatest test matches ever played. And then this last ball victory against Sri Lanka. In my lifetime, there have been the odd occasion where sport has been that thrilling. And I was lucky enough to be able to watch it because it was on free-to-air television. It was on an easily accessible platform. America's Cup, the Olympic Games, Hadley taking nine for 53 in 1985, even the underarm incident, underarm incident, Lance Ken's hitting six sixes. They were iconic moments that people were talking about the next day. People were talking about a week later. People are talking about now, 30, 40 years on. How many people in 20 or 30 years are going to be talking about the famous test win over Sri Lanka and the famous test win over England? Not many. To quote Scribe, if any. There would have been probably more people in the ground watching those cricket matches than there were probably watching it on Spark. Those running New Zealand cricket should be ashamed of themselves. They sold out a quick cash grab on a new platform that nobody was going to subscribe to. Not realising that the intangible damage they would do in doing so. Oh, we got an extra $5 million, $5 million more than perhaps what Sky were offering. Yeah, but you lost 80% of your audience. Kids should be walking around pretending to be Kane Williamson, mimicking Kane Williamson the next day after both those tests. Playing numbers should have suddenly just, interest in the game should have shut up overnight. I went to different cafes the following morning off the back of both those tests with an eclectic group of people and no one was talking about the cricket because no one had watched it. 
isn't that sad? Do we need to have government legislation in this country that makes those big sporting events like our New Zealand cricket team, like our rugby team, like the league team, like the netball, where it's free to wear, which everyone has access to? Because I'll argue if those two test matches had been on television New Zealand, the last hour of both those tests would have had a million plus audience. I mean, a lot of our cricketers walk down the street, I wouldn't even know what they look like because I've been so out of touch because I'm just not prepared to pay for a second online platform to watch my sport. Again, go through the board of New Zealand Cricket. Go and have a look at the executive. They'll all tell you how great they are. They'll all tell you how much business acumen they've got. Yet, how do they get this so wrong? And do you think that we should know what those numbers are? Spark come out and say, oh, it's commercially sensitive. Well, hang on a minute. You're no longer in business. You've got nothing to lose now. The reason they're not telling us is because they know it's an absolute disaster. New Zealand Cricket will be sitting there going, please let June 1st come around so we can go to TVNZ so we can get a broader audience. When they decided to take the Spark deal and it was clearly more money than perhaps what Sky was offering. Did they ever sit down and think, mm, we're going to lose 80% of our audience? Yeah, but we're going to make $5 million more. Yeah, but hang on a minute. When we have to renew our sponsorship with ANZ, we're going to go back to them and ANZ are going to go, hang on a minute. We lost 80% of our audience. We're only going to pay you 80%, 80% less than what we paid for the previous four years of sponsorship. It comes back and bites you in other areas. If you want to comment on that, 0800-150811. Should we have legislation which allows major sport free to wear? And should David White, CEO of New Zealand Cricket, resign because of this complete and utter appalling decision a few years ago to go with Spark and therefore preventing a lot of people from actually watching our game? Hi, Cliff. Afternoon, Mark. You're a real, you're a realist, you know, and there's so few about. I, I look back to the 1987 uh, test we played Australia and Perth, and Hadley tried to get Mike Whitney in the last over. It was the MCG. It was, it was a boxing, yeah, boxing Day test, the MCG. Yep, Mike Whitney. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and and I think of those test matches that were great because people knew about them. I I was I was at the basin. Uh, the day we we beat England, uh, England should never have lost that game. You know they blew it. They were 150 partnership they'd put on, Root and, and Stokes out there, and they threw it all away. But you know we battled and we battled and we they gave us a chance and we took it. It's the same against Sri Lanka. But I've I've been calling for David White's head for, for a long time. He signed us up for some crazy deals. We didn't play Australia for years. And we in future tours, it was hopeless. Then they sent us away to Australia with no lead-up games. They made us play a pink ball test the first game. You know, you can't go to Australia unless you get yourself organised. And we've never been organised. And we we had a good side. You know, this the sign in that deal with Spark was a joke. I, I've never taken Spark on because I knew it wasn't going to be a platform that was worthy, you know, it, it's so fuzzy. It's drops and changes and 
you know, it, and I didn't think it was going to last long. And, and at the end of the day, it didn't. Now we've gone back to TV One, uh, bits and pieces. It, it'll have ads in it, which is a shame. You know, you'll go to a big ad break and we'll end up missing the first ball possibly of the next over. You know, but, oh, they, they really grot me in New Zealand cricket, the way they've been doing stuff in the last few years. I just feel that the boards of both rugby and cricket are very, very wokey. They've got no passion. There's very few people of rugby or cricket knowledge or background in them. They, they seem to have... I spoke to a guy who was working for one of the major companies that, and he got kicked out of, of working on the sideline at rugby because they had to put more women involved. Things like this. This is where it's going. You know, people that have got passion. I the when Smithy came on the other day and said that he signed for another three years contract, and I thought, wow, this is good because there's very few of you and Smithy's left in broadcasting. A lot of the guys nowadays are, are there from other areas. They've got no background. You know, I'm not knocking them for for, for being out there and doing it, but. You've got to have passion, and, and there's no passion in, yeah, in some. Yeah, look, I, I've look. My my thing is, you know, I've never done anything in this game for money or for, I don't know, even you know, when you're working on the, the ZBs and some of those high profile profile shows, it was never about trying to be anything other than just a pure passion. And you're right, you've got to have passion. But look, in regards to whether it should be women, whether it should be different ethnic groups, I don't care as long as they're the best people. I think that's more the point, as long as they're the best people. And you do start to question in this political environment whether it is a case of virtue signalling. It is a bit of a box-ticking exercise over actually having the best people in place. Look, I don't think that... I think now, you know, cricket, rugby and sport in this country used to be owned by the fans. English Premier League football is owned by the fans. It's not the case here in New Zealand now. It's owned by the players and it's owned by an administration who only care about the bottom line. They're not actually interested in anything else. It's all about the bottom line. Uh, they don't factor in the intangibles, growth, um, how many sets of eyes are watching the thing. It's all about bottom line, and that's disappointing. The only people that seem to, you know, as crowd numbers, it's interesting, isn't it? As crowd numbers drop off, viewing numbers drop off, player salaries seem to be increasing. It's a model that's not sustainable. Lovely to have you on the program. Thank you, uh, Cliff. Hi, Joey. Yeah, g'day, Wado. Yeah, look, uh, just about the, the rugby and the guys having um about about rest or whatever. You know, it's they get you know they get paid to do a job, and, and like you say, you know, people people that pay money to go watch them want to go watch the best. You know, you don't have Manchester United stays in Rashford, or you're having you're having four weeks off because um, we're just going to give you a rest. You know, if they're going to go like that, I mean, I was talking to your producer and I said, you and Wado need to have a have a rest. You know, if you work four days. You know, it's too much, mm. you know. It's just a load of crap, mate. You know what I mean? If, if, you, if you're an all-black or you're going to play professional rugby, you should be wanting to play. And like you say, if you ask those players, most of them would say, oh, they don't want to rest. If you want to have a rest, you can go up to the coach on the quiet and say, look, I've had seven or eight games in a row. Um, I feel as though, I'm, 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 you know, the game's not as good as what it was six, six games ago. How about giving me, you know, just a week off or whatever? You don't have to, but, you know, let, let Mark Watto play, you know, or whatever. But they don't do that, you know. They've got to give these All Blacks, oh, we've got to give them um, a, a four, a, a three games off. 
what a load of crap. And that's where it comes from the top. That's why, you know, not not being mean, but, but Mark Robinson wouldn't get a job. But if I was a, if he comes in a firm that I, I owned or whatever as a CEO, he wouldn't get a look in. Because you, you, you've got to be practical about stuff. People want to go watch the best. That's what you pay your money yeah. for, Mark. And that's what they're getting paid for. I mean, they have a break. You know, okay, a lot of players, you go on that All Black tour, they only play for like two out of four games. They're not even playing a full 80 minutes. They come back in December. They have all of December off. They have most of January off. They don't start till late in February. You know and I know that by the time the season goes, they're always going to pick up an injury anyway. So they're going to have a break just out of, just by default. Good coaches are often going to rest a player anyway against a lesser side. But let the players decide at this block blanket approach, hey, everybody needs a rest. This is going to be good for everyone. Rubbish. The best two players of the All Blacks in 2011 were Jerome Kano and was Kevin Mialamu. Both played entire domestic seasons. And I think Jerome Kano may have only missed seven minutes that entire tournament. So someone show me where the data is that supports this theory of rest and rotation. Do they not care about the domestic game? I mean, club rugby's gone. Mitre 10 Cup rugby's gone. We're left now to Super Rugby. And then we suddenly turn around going, where's all of our depth? Where are our backup locks? We seem to be short in positions for the first time in our history. Wonder why. That's what happens when you erode the grassroots. I totally agree with you, mate. And, you know, like I've always said, you know, this sabbatical and that, they never come back. They, they, not one player that has had a sabbatical comes back and gets into the All Blacks and plays as well as he did before he had a sabbatical. Oh, oh no, look, because it's it's just a PowerPoint presentation. It's just absolute crap. It looks good on a PowerPoint presentation, you know, and all these sports scientists. All I'll say about that is, mate, the scientists, you know, scientists once told us the earth was flat. 22 minutes after 12. Telephone numbers 0800 150811. Joey, lovely to have you on the programme. Keep listening, mate. You're clearly a good man. The fact that you like me, you're clearly a very, very good-looking man as well in a very platonic way. Yeah, Mark Watson in for Mark Stafford. Telephone number is 0800 You can text us here on the temper, what is it, the temper, the temper text machine, the temper post text machine. There you go. And we do encourage people when you hear advertisements here on SENZ, if those brands are involved in any purchasing decision going forward, please go with the brands that support this station. They keep us on air. Coming up after one o'clock, Peter Lester, yachting commentator, will join us on the programme. We've got Sail GP making its debut in New Zealand in Christchurch. It's going to be sailed in Littleton Harbour. Peter grew up in Littleton. That's where he learned to sail boats. How difficult, how tricky. So we'll talk to Pete after one. Uh, but let's go to the phones. Hi, Brent. Hi, mate. How are you? Good, thank you. Thank you for waiting. It's okay. Ex Linwood Rugby, but living in Brisbane. Good on you, boy. Okay. Mate, where do you start? Well, you start with Mark, Mark Robinson, you know, the, the leader of New Zealand rugby. All right? Like, they don't make the tough decisions. Like, in, they, they, they anoint their successor in 2011 World Cup and they appoint Hanson. Yeah, it worked. And then they anoint. He goes again in 2015, right? And then 2019, even for Steve Hansen, who's part of the losing campaign, what do they do? Appoint the assistant coach for 2020 and beyond. Like, when everyone knows that he wasn't the right person for the job, you know, and then, and then they get the chance to, okay, we have him for two years. Let's wait and see how he goes. He was going very ordinary. And what they do? Extend his contract before... The two years is up, and then we go to the Northern Dawn, we get hammered by France, hammered by Ireland, 
I mean, come on. Don't disagree. I mean, if it was in the English Premier League, these guys would have been sacked a long time ago. Um, it's too much for an old boys network. You know, they're, they're, I think whatever happens, they should appoint Scott Robertson as the next coach. Now, not everyone agree with it, but I think he deserves his time. I think he's been a loyal servant to New Zealand rugby, but you just get the sneaking feeling, Brent, that he probably won't get that job. For some reason, he'll end up not getting that job. And it's because he doesn't fit that New Zealand rugby mould. He's not conservative enough. He doesn't speak eloquently enough. He's a little bit too out there. And that's what frustrates me. And then I'm sure that they'll probably still have the Steve Hansons in the background probably pushing their agendas. That's just my opinion. And it's incredibly frustrating. And that's just at a coaching level. Then you've only got to go and have a look at this rest and rotation policy. You've only got to have a look at the demise of the other forms of rugby I've mentioned. And really, it's not just about Ian Foster being let go. It's actually about, I reckon, the executive of New Zealand rugby. And we've got to do greater due diligence. We've got to have people on the board who are not just there to tick boxes, who are actually prepared to put their hand up, who are actually prepared to take one on the chin, who actually have a little bit of vision, and we just lack vision. All we're interested in in this country now is the All Blacks in the bottom line. It's not a sustainable model. And Mark, can I say one more thing? Please. Um, a little bit of a different opinion there on one thing. I actually think that Scott Robinson's already got the job. Right? I'll tell you why. Okay, you know... That test match when we got beaten in South Africa got beaten quite badly. And then before the second test at Joburg at, at Alice Park, Mark Robinson made a huge media announcement and said there's going to be a major announcement on the Sunday after the match. Right? And I actually believe that he had already approached Scott Robinson. He's already said yes. Okay? So then we play that second test, and I don't know how we won it after we played in the first test. And all of a sudden, you know, the players got by behind um, Foster and then Schmidt through his two Bobsworth in as well and all of a sudden Mark Robinson was in a terrible position because he'd already, I reckon he's already agreed to terms and I actually heard a lot of New Zealand sports journalists were so flabbergasted when they realised that he got extended for two more years because they believed the deal was already done with Robertson. so that's why I reckon Robertson has been a bit cheeky in the media saying no they're going to announce it sooner or later. He said to him, look, you told me I had the job. Yeah, I think, though, Brent, maybe for the fact he has come out and spoken out a term, might have just gone back against him. Tell you what, though, there will be a civil war if he misses out on that job. Brent, lovely to have you listening from Brisbane, mate. Enjoyed your call. Thank you. number of texts that have come on on the temper bed pest, uh, bed pest, temper bed post text machine. I'm struggling to get it out. If I was in the middle of the wicket at the moment, I'd be struggling to see the new ball. I'd be swinging and missing. I might even be back in the pavilion. Anyway, hopefully I'll get more eloquent as the afternoon goes on. Um, <laughs> 0800 150811 is the number. First time today. Wow. First time today that we've got spare lines. If you do want to phone through, I know a lot of people have been trying. Text us here again on 8833. Good looking man with a velvet voice. John with all the news. Alone, breakfast table
25 minutes away from one o'clock, I better address the texts that have come in on the temper bedpost text machine. Mark, Tom Walsh will be hating this. His ego, arrogance will be hurting when he has always thought he is the best. Funny how sponsors have not jumped on board with him. Well, I dealt with Tom. I find him very pleasant. I was lucky enough to call his bronze medal in 2016 at the Olympics, but you are entitled to your opinion. All I'll say, having Jack O'Gill in the background, you want competition. I always say this, to stay number one, train as if you're number two. You don't have Pete Sampras without Andre Agassi. And more texts that have come in. Free to wear? They can't afford to pay the players' demands. So we're just talking about free to wear television, whether or not we should have some sort of legislation so that we don't have the debacle we've had with the previous two cricket tests. Two of the greatest finishers, two of the greatest tests in history. No one watched them because they're on a platform that no one was prepared to pay for. Um, a platform where I'd argue the quality at times is below par. Another text, I agree, All Blacks having to rest. Most of them only play half a game now. I think the Irish play about 30 games a year before they play for Ireland. They didn't look like they were tired. Yet, well said. Hi Mark, hope you're well. Thank God someone has said this. Agree so much with the cricket. New Zealand cricket also lost out with radio rights too. We have lost touch with the actual team here in New Zealand. What I will say about that is, I'll be honest with you, growing up in the 1980s, you had the likes of the Coneys and the John Wrights and the Bruce Edgars and all these different players. You knew exactly what they all looked like. They were household names. Their faces were everywhere. I'll be honest right now. I couldn't tell you if I walked down the street what Tom Blundell looks like. I couldn't tell you what Michael Bracewell looks like. I might might be able to recognise Devin Conway, but not automatically. Matt Henry, maybe. Uh, certainly, you know, Blair Tickner wouldn't know what he looks like. My point being is because nobody's watching them. They just don't, they're not given the exposure on that platform. Nothing to do with Spark good on them for coming in and buying it, believing that it was in the best interest of their business going forward. But for New Zealand cricket to somehow honestly think that money in the short term was greater gain than losing 80% of audience is absolutely, completely and utterly nuts. 0800-150-811 is the number. You can text us here on double eight double three. Spear lines. We'll take a break. Okay, the quality control, the quality control has just got a lot better. Okay, we got the Pearl Jam. Got a lot of good stuff coming. Uh, Peter Lester on the program after two o'clock, uh, after one o'clock, to talk about the Sale GP, which is taking place in Christchurch on Saturday and Sunday. This new um, sailing event. I'm not convinced on it. I think it's a bit manufactured, but it seems to resonate with a lot of people, and I think it keeps our interest in the America's Cup going in between cups. Peter grew up in Littleton. It's not an easy place to sail. So what are some of the challenges that the crews will face in this part of the world in Christchurch? Hayden Sherman, athletics commentator. Commentator last night for the Sir Graham Douglas Classic at Waitakere Stadium will also join us on the programme to review last night's track and field performances. Zoe Hobbs again running very close to breaking sub-11 seconds, running 11.03. Was 
We saw good performances again from Jack O'Gill beating Tom Walsh. Lovely little rivalry finally, genuinely beginning to develop. We can talk motorsport between two and three. Some big news coming too. David Turner in studio. Big focus on indie cars and the New Zealand influence. And we've got a special announcement that we will announce after two o'clock regarding that. You can text us here on the Temper Bedpost text machine on 8833. You can phone the program on 0800 150 uh, If you have just joined us, I see today the Chiefs have rested four All Blacks for this clash against the Rebels. I am just so over All Blacks being rested. Bring out the damn violins for them. Life is just so tough for our All Blacks and our rugby players. No one does it harder. Our Ironman triathletes don't do it harder. Our rowers don't do it harder. Our swimmers don't do it harder. Well, actually, all three of them do it way harder and get paid basically nothing for doing it. You never hear them moaning. You never hear them complaining. Isn't it funny how in this country the most resource sports are the ones that cry the loudest about how tough it is, how we should be getting paid more? I mean, it's absolute and utter nonsense. Just trying to find another league anywhere in the world, any sport where the best players don't play. I don't blame people not turning up. Why turn up if you're not going to get the best product? I would buy into it. Well, I probably wouldn't. But if you're going to continue to sell it as giving out the All Blacks the best chance of winning the World Cup, show me the evidence that this works because I haven't seen it yet. 0800 is the number. Chiefs fans, how are you feeling? Sam Kane, Damien McKenzie, not going to be playing this week. Brody Retallick, Brad Webber. What team next week? Crusaders did it last week and they got the banana skin game and got beaten by the Fijian drawer. Oh eight hundred one five oh eight double one. Uh New Zealand cricket. Time for David White to stand down? Some fresh thinking, maybe the board. Whose decision was it to put cricket on the Spark platform? No one's watching it. We've had two of the greatest test matches in history. And it appears that very few people actually got to see it. The games were so good. If they were on TVNZ, or even on Sky, well, TVNZ you would have had a million plus people watching the last hour of those two tests. You would have had people the next day, young kids mimicking Kane Williamson, wanting to be Kane Williamson, like kids mimicked. Lance Keynes when he hit six sixes back in the early 1980s or when Martin Crowe had a wonderful Test 100 or Richard Hadley would come in with a little stutter run in the run-up. When are sports organisations going to realise that sometimes it's not just about the money? There are intangibles that you need to factor in. These two tests should be talked about like some of the great sporting occasions that happened 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, but they're not going to be. It might just be the first time in history there were more people in the ground watching a test match than we're actually watching it on TV. If you want to have your say, 0800-150-811. Just out of curiosity too, um, women's alpaki super rugby, no one's watching it. No one is going, no one is watching it. The stadiums are empty. Why not? Why are you not going to watch it? Is it perhaps the product's not that good? Are we allowed to say that? Oh eight hundred one five oh eight double one. Amit, good afternoon. 
Hey, good day, Wado. How are you? <laughs> good, thank you. Um, just wanted to echo what you're sort of saying with the All Blacks rest and rotation policy. Um, I'm not a Highlanders fan. I support the Crusaders, uh, even though I live in Auckland. But um, I was quite pissed off with uh, what happened last week where Billy Harmon was told to have to, have to rest um, because he went on the... No, well, not not part of the All Blacks end of year tour, but he was uh, part of the All Blacks fifteen, I think. So, and and to hear their coach say just that the media got to talk to the All Black coaches about that is yeah, but why? But that. why? Why are the All Black coaches influencing Super Rugby? Why? I mean, we've got coaches whose careers depend on results, and yet they're not in complete control of the teams they pick and put out on the park. It's a wrong model. It's BS. You cannot have a blanket approach for every single player. Yep, no, totally agree with that. And um, like I said, as a non-Highlanders fan, just to hear that and looking at where that team is right now, um, geez, they could have done with Billy Harmon last week against the Chiefs. Oh, look, absolutely they could have. And it's it's only going to get worse. There's, you know, my point is, let these guys play. There'll be a natural attrition rate anyway. They'll be forced to have a couple of weeks on the sideline. It's, it's, you know, this is exactly why when an all-black coach is not doing well, they should be sacked because if they've got this level of control and they've got this level of resource, then there should be no excuses. But is this coming from the all-black coaches, though, or is it coming from higher up? Because it's been going on for, well, since 2007, right? Yeah, and it didn't work in 2007, didn't work in 2019. Look, I think it's too many people in the background. I think sports science is having too much of a part in it. And... I think the all-black coaches, it's all about them, and, and it's wrong. You know, let's just let Super Rugby play. When the season's done, pick your team based on where the cards land and the chips fall. And if six of your marquee all-blacks are injured, well, hey, so be it. Because that's pretty much how the Northern Hemisphere play it. Yep. No, but what will you also do by not dropping your players and by having a strong competition, you'll actually create depth. So those players that do get injured, you at least have players then you can bring into a side. No, no, I totally agree. Um, yeah, no, I just just thought I'd share my views on that as well. Um, let's hope the Crusaders get the job done over the Blues this weekend. Yeah, some lovely little matchups to look forward to. It should be an absolute classic. Yep, cool. Cheers, what hey, lo- Lovely to have you on the programme. Just running through that Blues 2 team. Man out at boy, Alex Hodgman at 1. Ricky Riccatelli at 2. So at hooker, James Lay in the front row. Tucker and Sua Far a little bit light, aren't we, at lock. Adrian Choate. Studying at six, Dalton Papalihi at seven, Hoskins Satudu at eight. Interesting to see how Hoskins Satudu plays this weekend. Look good in the loose against the Hurricanes. Does he have the ability to get across the advantage line and be dynamic if the Crusaders play the same style of rugby they played in last year's Super Rugby final where they basically squeezed the Blues? Finlay Christie, arguably the player of the round at halfback, Bowden Barrett at first five. Roger Tuivasa-Shek, Rico Wani as your midfield, Mark Talia and Caleb Clark on the wing, Stephen Perifeta playing his 50th game for the Blues at fullback. We'll take a break, we'll come back and we'll run through that Crusaders squads. Bok Yachting commentator Peter Lester on the programme to preview this weekend's round of Sale GP to be staged at Littleton Harbour in Christchurch. Peter grew up and learnt to sail in Littleton, so we'll get a bit of an insight into what makes the conditions down there so tricky. What's the key to being successful in a very difficult piece of water. Hayden Shearman, track and field commentator for last night's 
Uh, Sir Graham Douglas Classic, he'll review that event and give us his thoughts on why athletics is in a really, really good place. Arguably the best place it's been in since the 60s and 70s. We'll continue taking your calls on 0800 150811 and on the Temper Bedpost text machine on 8833. I was just talking to Karen during the uh, break and Karen, you're a little bit like me. You're not really watching Super Rugby, are you? I mean, I take an interest, but it's no longer appointment viewing for me. I don't put off other events because I want to sit down and watch a rugby game, which probably is something I would have done in the 1990s and the early 2000s. Yeah, look, I mean, obviously Crusaders Blues this weekend. Who can go past it, right? It's just a simple Auckland-Canterbury rivalry. And especially here on ECNZ, you know, that's one of our favourite things to do is pick apart that rivalry. So I'll definitely tune in and watch that. But on a week-to-week basis, I don't sort of mind them resting players because I feel like the level of uh, viewership for Super Rugby has dropped drastically. I mean, it was a regular Friday viewing for me and my mates, you know, going down to watch Super Rugby. But we sort of slid away from that and, and I've always been brought up on, on Counties Monaco rugby you know they're, they're, I'm, I'm a big NPC and Heartland man yeah. in terms of my rugby because that's just what I was raised on so look uh, I'm not the biggest fan of super rugby anymore just because I feel like it's been taken but you, a bit too much in that professional but, uh, you, but you made a good point you said it doesn't really bother me that they're dropping the, and resting these All Blacks because no one's watching. I, I watch the All Blacks. It, it, but it's the chicken and the egg theory, isn't it? Which yeah. comes first? I watch but, the All Blacks when the All Blacks play, but, but, but I that, won't watch the All Blacks when they play Super Rugby but because that, it's, they're but, half there all the time. But that's it, isn't it? So what, what's actually happened? What's actually happened is that we know New Zealand rugby have pushed us in a direction that we're no longer what I call rugby fans, we've become all-black fans. Yeah. And then what we've got all-black coaches who are now starting to tell us it's okay to lose as long as we win the World Cup. So the next step in that, what I think was a downward slide or some might, what they think is an evolution, is that we're not going to take an interest in the all-blacks, we're going to take an interest in all-blacks at World Cup. So we've reduced the game to once every four years. Not a healthy place to be. Definitely not. Look, I'm, I'm pushing for NPC Heartland promotion relegation system. Let everyone go back, play for your hometown. You know, really rip it up. That's how I'm going to get into it. There's passion, not over a franchise. Yeah. Now, well said. Continue the discussion after one o'clock. You're listening to SENZ. minutes after one, you're listening to SENZ. We are going to talk some sailing now because Sail GP arrives in New Zealand shores. It starts tomorrow. It's in Christchurch. It's in Littleton. Not an easy place to sail. Not a place that you necessarily associate with sailing in this country. But one man who's won world championships and these days has established himself as the voice of the America's Cup is Peter Lester. He learnt to sail in Littleton. He joins us on the programme. Peter, good afternoon. Welcome. G'day, Watto. How are you? Good. Look, just before we start, look at Littleton. Uh, just had somebody texting in, just wanting to know what the Narpipi Road shift is. <laughs> old news, mate. That's old news. It goes right back to the last America's Cup. To just to add a bit of colour into the situation, 
don't let the truth interfere with a good story. Yeah, so, oh, Peter, tell the story because people are listening for the first time. We, we know and we sort of have a little bit of an inward joke, but it was actually part of your commentary and I thought it was very, very clever and um, it sort of does exist, but it doesn't exist. Well, now Pippi Road is on the um, on the southern side of the Auckland Harbour, and uh, it, I can't remember what race it must have been about race five of the America's Cup, uh, last America's Cup here, and the boats were sailing off North Head, outside of Cheltenham Beach, really, off, off um, over towards Rangitoto Island, and um, Team New Zealand pulled off a, a pretty amazing lead change from Luna Rossa, and and just in the excitement of the moment, there is actually over on the southern side, now Pippi Road, it comes out onto um, Tamaki Drive. Now if you sail on the harbour, there's a, there's a channeling effect that comes down out of the Araki Basin, and and that gives you quite a nice little wind shift, a little bit of a gain if, if you can hook into it, and it's it's commonly called the now Pippi Road shift by yachties around, you know, around the harbour. Now I took a little bit of liberty because admittedly they were off Cheltenham Beach, but it, it certainly added a bit of colour. And uh, you've teased me about it ever since. Oh no, I just think it's absolute gold. It's just funny how those sort of things organically grow and then they become part of sort of the sailing language, don't they? <laughs> and they become part of the brand, and people remember the America's Cup and goes, "Hadn't it been for that now, Pippi Road shift?" Um, <laughs> Peter, so look, you grew up, you sailed in Littleton. It's going to be the venue for Sail GP making its debut here in New Zealand. Tell us a little bit about the challenges the sailors will face and what makes that piece of water particularly tricky to sail in. Littleton Harbour, of course, Littleton itself, or Banks Peninsula, is an old volcano, you know, and, and uh, the harbour itself blew out into into the Pacific, um, you know, a channel, and so you come in from the Littleton Heads into Littleton Harbour, and then it, it, you actually are sailing inside a, a, an old, a very old volcanic crater. But the uh, geography of Can the Canterbury Plains and Littleton Harbour and Banks Peninsula really create a, a situation where, as the Canterbury Plains heat up, the prevailing wind, which is out of the east-northeast, gains speed. And you know we call that the sea breeze effect. So the hotter it gets in the Canterbury Plains, the more, more wind you get on Littleton Harbour. Coupled with that, the water down there is quite cold, um, and and so you get a you know it's it's a wind factory, and I I think on day one tomorrow it's going to be quite quite juicy, quite windy, and if you get, if you're going to tune in and have a look, it would certainly be worth looking. I think it's three o'clock tomorrow. It's on Sky, um, so it's predominantly um, a a, um, a sea breeze venue, unless there's a southerly or a nor'wester blowing. But this weekend it does look like predominantly sea breeze conditions. Um, it can be a bit of a one-way track. By that I mean it, it favours geographically to, to head over to the port side, over to the Littleton port side, uh, because the harbour actually bends around that way, which uh, which creates what we call a geographic shift, where the, the, the wind is favoured on the left-hand side. So I'll be looking for that. Um, the situation tomorrow afternoon will be interesting because you're looking at quite a decent northeaster, maybe more than 20 knots, on an outgoing tide. And, and the outgoing tide will make the sea state stand up. It'll create big, short waves. And um, when these boats are going along at you know, nearly 40, 45 knots, you, you really want 
to have the water as flat as possible. So that's going to make it pretty exciting. But, pa- but Peter, even when you're up on foils, does it matter whether the water's rough or not on foils? I would have thought it's just like cutting butter through, you know, cutting the knife through hot butter or hot uh, knife through butter. Where it matters is, is the steerage, the, the rudders, because if a rudder cavitates, it becomes detached. Um, and by that I mean, think of a powerboat when you power up an outboard motor. If it starts sucking air on the propeller, um, that's problematic for these boats, and they, they, they cavitate, and then you lose control. And that was graphically um, displayed when New Zealand won the America's Cup in Bermuda, in the same class of yacht, actually, uh, when, when they pitch-polled. That was due to the cavitation, the rudder letting go. Mm. So it's not so much the main foil. Uh, it's more the rudder control that, um, that the sea state will affect. I always think of Little Harbour, I think of it as being quite narrow. It is narrow. It's, it's, a, it's a narrow piece of water. And, and I see that as a big plus for this event because it, it, just by the, the, you know, the, the layout of the harbour, they'll be close to the shore and it will be exciting. People are going to, um, people that haven't seen this sort of racing will be quite surprised at how quick they are. Um, and they're going to get an absolute good view of it if, if you're lucky enough to have a ticket to be in Littleton on Saturday, Sunday. Okay, so what type of what type of skipper, what type of sailor is going to win here, based on what you've just described? Um, I mean, what's where does yeah, the I, where does the mindset need to be? Well, you, you certainly need to be prepared to take a risk because the style of racing they start off with a, a reaching leg, which means the wind's coming at ninety degrees, so on the side. So starting is absolutely crucial. Who, if, if a boat gets a, a blinder of a start and is ahead at Mark 1, it's very hard for the trailing boats to pass. So passing lanes will be few. Um, in terms of the wind strength and the sea state, traditionally the, the, the countries that like that sort of breeze tend to be the, the New, Zealand and, New Zealanders and the Australians. I think Ben Ainsley from Great Britain, because, again, they get good breeze in the solid. He'll be good in it. Tom Slingsby, um, who is uh, sailing for the Australians, he's actually leading the World Series overall. Um, I I would watch out for him. And, of course, Peter Burling, this is his bread and butter. Um, I think that will be probably the group to look out for. There's a young French guy who's going, who won three races uh, in, in Sydney at the last event, um, Quentin Delapierre, and he's a 49er sailor, Olympic sailor, and he'll be the other one to watch out for. At this level, they're all pretty even, and um, I would more go back and think, who can ever get off the line, get off that start line clean and be in the top? three at that first mark consistently will be um, hard to beat in this regatta. How much room have they got to manoeuvre in regards to the setup of the boat? Oh, not much. Um, the, the difference between the America's Cup and these boats, now these are, as I said, the boats that were used in Bermuda, the 50-foot cats, but of course that is essentially an open rule when they were sailing in the America's Cup. What Sail GP have done is equalise the boats. Um, and, and that has meant it, it's not a hardware game. It really is a, a setup game. Who, who's, who gets the little tweaks right? And then, of course, sailing ability. Um, so, so essentially, the, the rules of the class mean that the, the hardware is essentially equalised.
Mm, yeah, no, fascinating. Now, look, um, I, I want to ask you this about the hydrodynamics. So, and maybe you've just answered the question, but water down there is a lot cooler. Uh, boats and water, or things on water tend to move faster in warmer water. So the fact that it is colder water, does that have any impact in the way you set your sails up or the way you do set your boat up? Yeah, it does. Uh, it, there's a there's a, a rough equation that um, actually Tom Schnackenberg, who who really is a sailing scientist, he 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 used to tell us about, and he said for every um, ten degrees of temperature drop, you get a you, you essentially get a ten ten percent gain in not in wind speed but in density of the wind um, that that creates more power, um, and so that will be a factor down in Littleton because it will be cold. The, the water's cold, and I think tomorrow they're looking at a, an air temperature of only 14, 15 degrees on the water, as opposed to what we have in Auckland at the moment of probably, you know, quite warm water and what air temperature on the water of, of, of in, in the region of 20 degrees. That will have an impact. So what that means is that the guys, but the, the sailors at this level react to it really quickly. They'll, they'll tend to depower the boat earlier. What aspects of the rules do you like and what aspects of the rules are you not that happy with? I know maybe previously off here when we've discussed perhaps the way these boats start. Yeah, I think um, the, the starting sequence to me is, I think it's unfair. Well, not unfair. I, I think it favours the boat that wins the start and wins the first rate mark, is, is leading at the first mark, has a massive advantage. And to me, it's a bit slanted that way. I mean, it looks good on telly uh, as an entertainment event, but it makes it very difficult I, I, for the boat to okay, behind. So, so just explain, say, the difference between what they're doing here and what we might see watching the America's Cup, which people are probably familiar with. Well, America's Cup, the, the last cup here, of course, the start of the race, you sailed directly downwind and you would go upwind, which gave you a left and right option. Uh, these boats will start with the wind coming um, from essentially side on at, at 90 degrees, which means they they um, they reach to the first mark. So there's not a, a left and right option if you're behind. You only get that essentially when you get down to mark um, down to the bottom mark, mark two, when they go through the gate. And and but but, but by then the template is really set. The other the other feature, and I. I think it's actually quite good. The races are very, very short. You're only talking a, a 12 to 14 minute race, um, as opposed to America's Cup now, where you're talking a 40 minute race. Now, with the race being so short, it makes it harder to pass because you just don't have much time. Um, the key areas to look out for for passing lanes or opportunity to pass will will be at those the top mark gate and the bottom mark gate. Um, if there's any quirks in the wind, wind shifts, and, and as I've talked about Littleton, the left-hand side tends to pay on the upwind legs. That could create a passing opportunity as well. Mm. Peter, you mentioned these boats, uh, former America's Cup boats used in Bermuda. We know how quickly technology moves on and how these boats can become quite well archaic very, very quickly. Um, have these boats managed to evolve as yachting's evolved or have they now when you look at them yes while they look fast they're still comparatively slow with the technology that we're probably going to see in the next america's cup oh they're still pretty quick uh, you know they are foiling <laughs> they are on the edge and since they were used in, in bermuda they have, have the boats have evolved 
um, the, the foil package and even the wing package and the, the control system for the wing. So um, Sail GP uh, have done a good job of, of keeping the boats relevant. Um, but where they sit with the new America's Cup class, they're substantially slower, especially upwind, into the you know going upwind um, on those upwind legs. On the downwind legs, they're there or thereabouts in terms of speed with the the modern the, the new America's Cup boats, the 75 footers. Uh, but really, that that's all irrelevant, really, Mark, because the, the nine boats that are racing down there, it, it's about boat on boat. And, and although the speed and it's exciting and it, and it creates, you know, that um, that effect of almost like what, watching NASCAR, um, I, I think these boats are okay for what they're doing. Um, the other one to compare them with, if you're lucky enough to have seen them, is the, the America's Cup class rule for the next cup. You you can't build more than one big boat, a 75-footer, but you can build these surrogate boats or up to 40 feet. Now that compares with these boats that we're seeing in Wellington. And, and the surrogate boats, and Team New Zealand have two of them in Auckland at the moment, they are blisteringly quick. What I'd like to see is what the, the 40 foot AC class boats, the monohulls, have a go against one of these cats. Mm. It would be an interesting uh, tussle. I suspect the 40 footers are quicker. The, the monohulls uh, would be faster. Yeah, I would have thought for the sustainability of this sail GP and no different to Formula One and what we've even seen with supercars in Australia that, you know, there is a change out in equipment, there is a change out in in the way these cars are put together or the way boats are put together. Uh, are we likely to see possibly Russell Coates and the organisers of sail GP end up picking up a number of um, smaller boats out of this current America's Cup class and maybe that is the way forward for them, that is the next evolution? Yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, that'll, that'll be up to... to you know, Russell Coots and Larry Ellison, and of course, Larry Ellison pretty well bankrolls the steel. Um, yeah, th that might be an option, or we might even see, I mean, things change so quickly in this game, um, that after the next America's Cup, the the America's Cup community des decide to put together a circuit using these AC40s that are, are being used at the moment for um, testing and development and a bit of racing. The, the Women's America's Cup and the Youth America's Cup are going to be sailed in those 40-footers, and, and I think that'll be a good test for them and, and whether they've got a future for a circuit like the Sail GP. Sail GP is fitting a, a good hole in the market for sailing, and, and uh, these guys that are sailing them are using them because there's a lot of America's Cup people there. Uh, it, it keeps them current, keeps them on the water, you know, doing starts, sailing against each other. Um, we're pretty lucky to have this event down here, actually. Mm. Well, Peter Lester, you enjoy the coverage um, over the next couple of days, and thank you for taking time and joining us on the programme this afternoon. OK, mate, all the best. Thank you, Peter Lester, the America's Cup commentator, previewing this weekend's round of Sail GP. He grew up in Christchurch, he learnt to sail in Littleton, so he has plenty of experience on that particular piece of water. Uh, look, if you're in the Christchurch region, you are going along to Sail GP. Just keen to get your thoughts on what are you, why are you going along, what are you hoping to see, and um, yeah, what's the reason? Is it are you curious? Um, is it the first chance Christchurch have had really to get a bit of a taste of something close to the America's Cup? What about ticket prices? It is ticketed for large parts of it. Oh eight hundred one five zero eight double one is the number. I've lived, and I know that between 12 and 1, we didn't have the entire country in. Um, so, look, I just want to put a couple of other topics out there for those that may have just tuned in. But 
Chiefs have dropping four All Blacks for this weekend's round against the Melbourne Rebels. Uh, more Super Rugby teams, more All Blacks resting. Are you like me? Have you had a guts full of this? Why can't we just have our best players playing every week? How do you feel as Chiefs fans knowing that Sam Kane's not playing, Brad Webber's not playing, Brady Retallick's not going to play? 0800 150811. Where's the proof? Where's the evidence that this works? Why is it that the New Zealand rugby coaches, the All Black coaches, have a say in the way a Super Rugby franchise is run? It makes the competition a farce, doesn't it? I mean, look what happened to Crusaders last week. Let's rest a whole lot of our players. Let's give them the All Black break now. They get tipped up by the Fiji and Drua. Chiefs are unbeaten. Just put your best team on the park. Get four from four. Damien McKenzie, another one being rested. 0800 And we were just talking about the cricket, how we've had these two remarkable test matches. Um, but because of cricket's decision to go with Spark some years back and giving them the rights, no one's watched it. And so while New Zealand cricket has banked a big check, the intangible damage has been done. They've lost a large part of their audience. No one the next day after the England test, no one the next day after the Sri Lanka test was sitting around at tables talking about it. There would have been the odd person because they've got Spark and they would have watched it. But if that had been on free-to-air television, they would have had a million and a half people watching it because it was that, that intriguing. It was absolute appointment viewing. And there would have been kids the next day picking up bats at school wanting to be Kane Williamson. No different to us wanting to pick up a bat in the early 1980s, shave the shoulders off it and mimic Lance Kens or kids growing up in the 80s pretending to be Richard Hadley coming in with that slight stutter in their run-up. Is it time for change at the top of New Zealand cricket? And why... Can't we find out the numbers of people that were watching this? Why is it commercially sensitive? If lots of people watching it, they would tell you. Clearly no one's watching it. 0800 150 just on the temper bedpost text machine. Someone texting in. I think it was a disgrace. Trent Bolt wasn't playing in a home series this summer. He's a game winner. Pay him what he's worth. Another ball's up by New Zealand cricket. That comes from Rory. What Have the coaches been brainwashed by the New Zealand Rugby Union? If not, why did they give them the bugger? Uh, what did they give them? Yeah, basically just saying, you know, hey, yeah, why should I watch? 0800 is the number. It is 29 minutes after one. We'll bring you some news and sport and weather, etc. Very shortly, a couple of texts that have come on on the Temper Bedpost text machine. I like this one. You don't see the Six Nations or South Africans rest players and their club season is way longer. More you play, more hardened and fitter you become. I agree. Someone's saying the reason why we have rest and rotation all goes back to Graham Henry. He started it and his line of disciples can't comprehend ending it. What oh? 
I love this. I think my wife or mother sent this and probably my mother. Watto, you're a pleasure to tune into and listen to. You are the Truth Radio one-on-one. The Wokesters are killing New Zealand sport and David White's actions with cricket going to spark should be. And I just need to bring up the rest of the text. Uh, actions with cricket going to spark should be deemed sporting treason. Okay. Oh, yeah, I guess I'm hitting all these sort of different buttons at the moment. I'm a little bit, what do you call it, technology deficient? Am I technology deficient? I'm technology deficient. My wife, true story here, Karen. My wife thinks I'm the least manly man she knows. I probably shouldn't be saying that publicly. I'm one of those guys. Have you seen that ad on TV where the guy goes out and builds the fence or the guy phones someone to build the fence? I'm the guy that phones someone to build the fence. Well, like, like I always say, right, so say if it's a problem like that, Instead of messing about and doing a half-ass job yourself, trying take, to take that pride, mate, get an expert to do it. You know, I saw someone well, clean windows creating the other employment. day. Mate, I saw someone clean windows the other day. I went, what on earth? He was wrapping the wrapping the towel around a special stick, getting up right up in the corner. Right. I say, mate, you're an expert. I'll pay you to do it. Yeah, I know. I'm supporting local. I tell you, when you've got a house, nothing looks better than clean windows. Never underestimate the window cleaner. Talented men. Be a very, very good Seinfeld episode, mm. wouldn't it? We often talk about Seinfeld episodes. The window cleaner. I think you're a manly man. Shirt on or shirt off? Yeah, platonic off. Lines a longitude and latitude, baby. <laughs> That's what I always say. Take your shirt off, you know. Six pack. Not that I've got a six pack, you know what I mean. Lines a longitude and latitude, baby. Only head one way. Anyway, it's bloke radio, isn't it? It can be a little bit like that. A little bit of fun, can't we? Can't we? Or are we not allowed to have a sense of humour anymore? Anyway, let's pick up the news, sport, and the weather with John. Oh, nothing better than a little bit of Paradise City, a little bit of Guns and Roses to kick things off. We're going to talk with our TAB correspondent, Thad Taylor, very shortly on the programme. Do we have him? We don't have him there yet. Is that what you're saying? We don't have him there yet? Oh, Finn James just keeping him occupied, oh, catching Finn's up. Oh, Finn's keeping him up. It's great. We love Finn. Finn's a good Westlake boy, good basketball player. Thad Taylor, very good afternoon. Welcome. How are you? Oh, what a Thanks for having me. Very well. Very well indeed. How much money have you made off Liverpool Football Club this season? <laughs> get into, uh, yeah, look, there's been a few disappointments. Uh, Man, you threatened for a bit. Liverpool of all everyone's favourite, or certainly from a betting perspective. So, yeah, that Premier League's been a bit in and out and a bit up and down, and, um, yeah, still don't quite know how it's going to finish up, I don't think. Mm, okay, when we look forward to the weekend, which is always big for sport, <laughs> where is the focus for the TAB? I mean, I know you're across so many sports, but what are, what are the big events people are talking about and placing bets on? Yeah, well, obviously, Black Caps Sri Lanka, uh, we're hoping it's going to get underway shortly. That's been a big one. The Black Caps are pretty short there at $1.80. Sri Lanka, $8.30. And obviously, the draw's pretty short with this rain that we're going to get, we've had today, and that we're going to get overnight tonight for 2.39, the draw. Super Rugby, there's a fair few one-sided events this weekend. Um, but the game that everyone's talking about is the Blues Crusaders tomorrow night, 7.05 at uh, Eden Park. So that's certainly the money. Incredibly well split between the Blues and the Crusaders. So no one's quite sure what's going to happen there. You can have a bonus back bet in that so all those Super Rugby games as well, Mark. And you have a winning team in margin bet if the other margin hits. So if you took the Blues 13 and over, the Blues win 1 to 12, you get your bet back as a bonus bet up to $50. So that's not a bad way to play it all weekend, to be fair. Yeah, so so just on that, I said you said it's fairly evenly split. But where is money at the moment? Who, who has the slightly better odds? Oh, the Blues are favourites. The Blues are favourites, which I don't say surprises me. I think that's probably just fair enough 
with them being at home and they've had to come, the recruiters haters have had to come back from Fiji, although they had a fair few All Blacks rested. So, look, I think normally we would say the Crusaders would be slight favourites, but I can understand the Blues being the slightest of favourites. They're a dollar eighty-five to win the match. The Crusaders are a dollar ninety-seven. The draw's sitting at sixteen dollars, and like I think the price of the draw gives you some indication uh, of how close this match is p- predicted to be, because. You know, usually that draw would be out there at $26, $31. It's only paying $16. So a fair few people suggesting that the draw might not be a bad bet. And the point start is half a point. So Blues minus a half is $1.87. Crusaders plus a half, $1.87. So just shows you the evenness of it. But Blues slight favourites, Watto. Okay, Thad, no one's going to hold you to it. But if you're out there and you're thinking of having a little bit of a, a punt this weekend, what what, what, what would be, uh, what would where would you push people oh, towards? Gee, tell you what, uh, look, we've got the Saudi Arabia Grand Prix. If you like them short for your multis, it's hard to see Max Verstappen uh, getting beat. And there's a bonus back in the F1 as well. So you can back a driver and he, if he finishes second, third or fourth, you get a bonus bet up to $50. The interesting story in that F1, I've just to, to segue slightly, is Fernando Alonso in the Aston Martin. He was $251 to win the Drivers' Championship uh, before the uh, first race, which was a couple of weekends ago. He's now $12. He finished third in his Aston Martin. No one gave Aston Martin a chance. People have got tickets with, that, uh, with, a, with Fernando Alonso at $251. I like to take a bit of an NRL multi uh, over the weekend. Watto, that's the way I like to go. Like I think the Dolphins will romp it in tonight. I think the Dolphins against the Knights. I think the Dolphins minus four and a half is a cracking bet tonight. Uh, and I'd give the Warriors a bit of a sniff at the point start, plus ten and a half. Keep the faith, Watto. Uh, plus ten and a half, the Warriors against the Cowboys at a dollar ninety. So I just like to couple together a little NRL multi for the weekend. Keep myself interested. And there are NRL multi promotions that you can bet into the Oval Ball Mega Multi Buster. Uh, so you can get all the T's and C's on that on the TAB website.co.nz. Thad Taylor, appreciate your time this afternoon. Do check out the TAB, tab.co.nz. You must be 18 years of age and please bet and gamble responsibly. It is 22 minutes away from 2 o'clock. You're listening to SENZ. Coming up next, we will catch up with Hayden Shearman, who was the commentator last night for the Sir Graham Douglas Classic. Waitakere Stadium, track and field in a really good place. We'll get him to review last night's performances. Zealand track and field season came to a close last night at Waitakere Stadium with the Sir Graham Douglas Classic. All of our leading athletes were taking part. The commentator last night was Hayden Sherman. He joins us on the programme to review this and to talk some athletics. Hayden, good afternoon. Welcome. Good afternoon. Jack O'Gill continues to upstage his more fancied rival in Tom Walsh. This has got to be a good thing heading towards Paris. Yeah, re- really cool for Jacko, you know, to go two and zero against his, his old rival, his old his old mate, and um, really promising signs for Jacko. He, so he's now a twenty-two meter man, going twenty-two meters twelve, and that puts him twenty-fifth all time in the world. So you know, now he's he's in the conversation for those global medals, and to have two guys right up there. Um, is fantastic for the sport. I know Jacko will be, uh, Tom will be hurting uh, after this, but um, look, I'm sure Tom understands understands the process and, and where he is. He's usually around this sort of 
uh, distance high 21s this time of year anyway. So so he'll be trusting the process. But great signs for Deco. Really exciting. Yeah, what do we put this improvement down to? Is it just simply layer on layer, year after year? And we often see this, that an athlete does have that breakthrough performance. I mean, why are we starting to see Jacko Gill maybe starting to finally fulfil the potential and promise that we saw from him as a junior? Yeah, well, like you say, he had so much promise. I mean, when he was playing these world junior records, the, the world of shot putting was, was put on alert and watching this guy. And, and But then he just hit these injuries, illness, got bitten by dog, you, you know, all these mishaps that, that hit his career. Um, and so really it's now he, he's getting a bit of consistency in terms of training uh, and working with um, Dale Stevenson, so Tom Walsh's old coach, um, and uh, it seems like they're dialing back the intensity that it's putting in the gym and a bit more focus around the, the technical aspects of, of the throw itself. Um, obviously, it's a you know it's not just about speed and power; it's a it's a very technical movement, um, and he he's looking really fluid and getting that consistency in the throw, in the shot put circle as well. So, uh, whether that's the the ingredient or whether it's just Finally, he's getting that consistency, um, but it also seems like he's in a really happy place as well. With you know, mum and dad really involved with the coaching, family he's really really close around them. So he's got a great set, set up with the uh, team Jacko on board. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's exciting times, and um, with Madison Weshi, you know, showing good consistency in the women's shot put. Uh, with Dame Val retiring, you know, we've got plenty of stock to, to fill the boots. Uh, that that Dame Bell has left. Mm, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Um, how one creates a legacy, and we get that succession plan. I want to talk about Zoe Hobbs. What a remarkable week! Breaking eleven seconds officially in Australia at ten nine seven. Last night, backing it up with a new New Zealand residence record of eleven point oh two. How much quicker do you think she can run? Well, that eleven oh two, we were all watching it, uh, sort of looking like she's, you know, just going through her processes, almost coasting through. Afterwards, we didn't know the time yet, and she was she was saying, oh, I, didn't, I didn't get a great start. Was, uh, you know, I just came here to have a bit of fun and dropped at 11.02, which, you know, uh, would have smashed the previous New Zealand record up to when she started breaking it 18 months ago. So she, her trajectory is just in, incredible, and the fact that she's, She's dropped this Oceania record of ten nine seven. She's now a sub eleven woman. Um, now she's in with the discussion, much like Jacko is uh, amongst the top women in the world uh, in the hundred meters, which is is no joke. So she's ranked number ten in the world currently, um, and so expect her to, you know, be one of those women to to push for places in in the final. We've got the the Budapest. World champs coming up later this year, um, and could the improvement curve carry her on uh, to be one of the the people we talk about for for medals? Who knows? Um, as as we know, the the world of sprinting is, is you know it's a truly global sport, and to have a Kiwi girl from from Taranaki from Stratford in Taranaki to now be competing with the, the top woman and have a sub eleven uh, female sprinter from New Zealand, you know that it's just it, it's absolutely wonderful for the sport and you know there's a, a real sense of excitement now that we have a genuine world-class sprinter on the scene 
eagerly anticipated was the women's pole vault. Weather conditions never really allowed it to eventuate. Eliza McCartney taking out top spot with a jump of 4.46, but good to see her back and consistently competing and consistently training. Olivia McTaggart, she would have been on a bit of a high after having jumped 4 metres 71, which is just simply outstanding. But neither McTaggart, neither um, Iris, who won bronze last year, could reach that first qualifying height. Yeah, absolutely. So it was a uh, it was a tricky one last night. We had some crosswinds, and then the, the rain arrived, it dried up, and so uh, yeah, the the vaulters were having to to jump blind in terms of weather conditions changing, and really impressive to see Eliza get a mark on the board, um, and like you say, show show a bit of consistency this this domestic season. But yeah, it's been, it's just been a real treat to have Imogen, Olivia, and Eliza this season competing alongside each other. Uh, so uh, Olivia McTaggart with that four seven ones all all but punched her ticket to the world champs, and I'm sure we'll see Eliza and Imogen um, accumulate those points towards world champs as well. So three three world class pole vaulters and those three women, and yeah, like you say, great to see Eliza back to fitness. It's been a, a long, hard road for her. Uh, seven years, uh, if you can believe it, yeah. since she won that famous bronze. Yeah, long time out of the sport. Look, I want to ask you this, you know, growing up in the 1970s and 80s, when you went to track and field, it was always the Blue Ribbon event was the men's 8 and 1500, and the women's yeah. um, with the likes of Anne Ordain and Lorraine Moller in the 1980s. Now the Blue Ribbon events are in pole vault, <laughs> in shot put. <laughs> Why? Why? What are we doing right? Why suddenly are we emerging in the field side of track and field? Look, I I think it, it comes down to the the coaching depth uh, around the country. There's just some passionate people who really know what they're doing, and the likes of say Val Adams and before her Beatrice Farmwinner competing domestically, rubbing shoulders on the training pitch with with the young athletes coming through and then the coaches gaining that experience around around movement and I had a good chat to Terry Lomax last night after the meet uh, coach of, of Hamish Kerr our, our world class high jumper and there, there is a real sense of just these coaches getting this experience uh, getting that uh, awareness of, of how to make those minor tweaks to, to your movement and um, yeah we're seeing it across the field events now. Uh, we're not just a nation of middle distance runners. We've truly got that depth across track and field. Wonderful to see. But we should also not underestimate too what Sam Tanner's doing overseas and what Geordie Beamish are doing. I mean, these guys are running as quick as any middle distance runner has run out of this country. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So Geordie's sort of more focused on the five thousand but still great great wheels uh, over the mile as well he, he just missed out by a whisker on booking his ticket in the 1500 meters but uh, I imagine his focus will be on the, the 5000 after taking down Nick Willis's 3000 meter record earlier this year and then Sam Tanner you know he's just got an amazing set of wheels and we saw him last last year in that that really deep uh, Commonwealth Games 1500 meter final uh, drop a 3.31, and I think that just lit the fire that, hang on, I can I can keep with these guys as well. Um, I'm, not just a, I'm not just a kick. Um, I can also uh, run those fast times. So expect some big things from Sam Tanner. He's, he's hungry. He's 
uh, a great competitor, a great character. So, yeah, Sam Tanner and, and Geordie Beamish are definitely ones to watch. Mm. Uh, to fill those shoes from from left from Nick Willis in the fifteen hundred. Yeah, incredibly exciting. Certainly looking forward to it. Look, just finally, Hayden. Um, any other sort of performances last night that you just want to talk about that stood out for you? Yeah, in the long jump, actually, great performance from Shay Veach, uh, coming within six centimeters of the the national record, which is one of the oldest national records that we've got, dating back to nineteen sixty eight. So good to see him uh, jump out to seven nine nine, getting very close to, to breaking eight metres, so so watch that space. Uh, but it's, it's certainly an exciting time to be a fan of New Zealand athletics, uh, sprinting, jumping uh, and throwing. Uh, it's, it's all going on. Um, so, yeah, the, the, sort of the next step for our athletes from here is to head over to Australia, the, the Brisbane Track Classic next on the calendar, and then a lot of our top athletes compete in the the Australian National Championships as well. So that sort of wraps up the Southern Hemisphere competition and then it, the focus goes back to Europe and the States uh, for, the, for the key part of the year. Hayden Sherman, appreciate your time on the programme. Well done last night. Fantastic. Thank you. Coming up to one minute away from two o'clock, David Turner, Mr Motorsport, is going to be in studio between two and three taking your calls. We've got some big news, something really exciting that is about to be announced on the show. It's going to be a really good opportunity to provide New Zealand with some nationalism and just show how little old New Zealand, the impact it is having on motorsport, particularly in the United States. We're going to talk with David on that after two o'clock. So keep your thoughts coming here on double eight double three on the Temper Bed Post text machine. We will open the lines. We're going to talk about Shane Van Gisberg and the controversy last week surrounding his car, the supercar series going forward, the new changes, and of course the Formula One Grand Prix on this weekend. That between two and three next here on SENZ. Bon Scott, ACDC, TNT, only appropriate because this hour we talk motorsport. From Perspective Group, Mr Motorsport himself, David Turner, joins us in studio. Really special announcement very shortly here on the programme. An opportunity to sell New Zealand to the motorsporting world or certainly highlight the influence New Zealanders are having in the world of motorsport, something that perhaps is lost on a lot of people particularly outside of the likes of the Scott Dixons, the Scotty McLaughlins and those drivers that we are familiar with. We're also going to talk about supercars, controversy surrounding Shane Van Gisbergen in the first round in Newcastle. We've got the Formula One Grand Prix this weekend in Saudi Arabia. If you want to phone the programme, you want to talk motorsport, you're interested in the conversation, David is happy to take your calls on 0800 150 811. You can text us here on 8833. That is the temper 
Bed Post text machine. David Turner, good afternoon. Welcome. Privileged to have you in studio. Oh, it's good to be in the studio for a change, actually. It's great. Mm. Now, David, you've got a big smile on your face because I know that the announcement that you're about to tell everyone about has been a work in progress. It hasn't been easy. Um, a lot of legalities, I guess, around it. But the good news is it's going to happen. And what a wonderful opportunity to showcase New Zealand's influence in motorsport, not only to us here in New Zealand, but hopefully around the world. What is the big news? Well, like you said, if you want it hard enough and you desire it, then no matter how hard it is, you chase it just like a driver does. So that's exactly what we've been doing. And um, yeah, proud, very feel very proud actually to announce it with you this afternoon that um, Perspective Group, my company, will be uh, producing a documentary on New Zealanders in IndyCar, not just the drivers, but the many, many crew that are behind the scenes in very significant roles. Uh, and we've got the go-ahead from the Penske Entertainment uh, Corporation and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and we'll be shooting the documentary during the entire month of May and the first week in June in Detroit as well at the Detroit Grand Prix. So it's all go, and uh, Sky Sport New Zealand will be our official broadcaster for it later in the year. And we'd imagine then that hopefully some other international companies will pick this up and showcase this to the rest of the world. When we think of Indy cars, we think of Scott Dixon, and more recent times we think of Scotty McLaughlin. But the New Zealand influence in this is far greater and far broader. Tell us about some of the personalities, some of the people that are going to be introduced to the wider sporting public. Well, it, it is, you know, and that, that's been my desire to um, to do what we're about to do. And it is a documentary rather than a reality series, so making that quite clear. But it will be around those significant events that happen, including the 107th running of the Indy 500. So it's, you know, it's a pretty milestone event. For me, it's actually my, I only worked this out this morning, it's my 21st Indy 500 this year. So we might as well do it in style, eh? So, um, but it is, it's about the, the other New Zealanders. We know that we've got a, a host of drivers up there, and, and obviously Dixon's the leader of the pack there, McLaughlin, Marcus Armstrong joining the series this year. Hunter McElroy in the Indy Next Feeder Series and then further down the ladder in USF 2000, Jacob Douglas out of Christchurch. So we've got some great driving talent. But when you look further behind the scenes, uh, you've got the Julian brothers from, from Stratford or from the Taranaki area. Um, Blair has been with Ganassi as long as Scott has, and yet it's not known. And, and what's his role? Uh, well, he started out at the at the very, if you like, the floor sweeper end, and uh, he's now a team manager uh on one of the teams in, in, in the management structure of Ganassi. And, and he's a boy from Taranaki. And he's a boy from Taranaki. And his brother, uh, Anton, has worked at Andretti Autosport, uh, worked for Sarah Fisher Racing, worked on the A1GP US team, um, and is currently at the McLaren IndyCar team as well. So that, you know, there's a significant brother relationship there, if you like. And then we've got... I was going to say cast of thousands, but it's not quite that many. But, you know, there's, there are other Kiwis. Paul Ziggy Harkis is the team manager at Andretti's and has held that position for quite some time. Um, very, very significant guy. has been around the sport, you know, his entire life with Packwest Racing, had dealings with Dixon early on, all that sort of thing. So th these guys do strategy during the race and, and a, a variety of roles. Um, Malcolm Finch, who you know came from Auckland and, and worked for Lyle Williamson's International Motorsport Organisation here, is a data engineer at, at Penske. And you know uh, his first Indy 500, uh, he was doing the data management during the race for Simon Paginot, and they won the 500. So it was a great way for him to start. So he's now you know looking after some of McLaughlin's data 
Um, Brendan Cleave, who works for McLaren, is a damper specialist, and you know these. What's a damper specialist? Like a shock absorber. Okay. So, and those guys play a very, very significant role in how the car is set up and the understanding of what that mechanical part of the car is doing. And and they're just they're really highly regarded. There was a guy I met a few years ago who was doing a very similar role in NASCAR and came from Gordonton near Hamilton. Um, and he could pretty much name his prices to what he got paid because he was that good at understanding that part of the technology. So there's a host of Kiwis there. There's an, another guy, Shane Davey, who is a carbon fibre specialist and runs a company called Kiwi Composites just outside of Indianapolis. And these guys, they, they more than hold their own just as much as the drivers do, and they're just as sought after as the drivers as well. Because of the New Zealand influence over there, have indie cars and those factory teams with indie cars really woken up to New Zealand as a brand in terms of its people power across the motorsport industry? Are they now looking to New Zealand for expertise? Uh, if they haven't, they should. But, um, I, yeah, I think they're aware of it. They're certainly aware of the fact that we're you know, a smaller nation, if you like, in the South Pacific. But what we do in our mentality and attitude towards the job, whether it be a driver or a person behind the scenes, is... You know, second to none. Um, I recently had a, a conversation with Scott McLaughlin, and we t- said, you know, we're batting above our, our weight, and I think we are. But we're we a lot of it is work ethic, Mark. You know, like our guys don't do this nine to five thing. You know, they they realise that if the job's got to be done or the effort's got to be put in there, then they do it. And mm. just as much as say a person like Dixon, one of his most remarkable things, and you hear Chip Chip Ganassi and, and Mike Hull, the managing director at at Ganassi's talk about it a lot. It's Scott's work ethic and the amount of effort he puts in as well outside of the car. Mm. So, yeah, no, the Kiwis have got a good reputation there, and these guys deserve, in my eyes anyway, and I kind of convinced Sky Sport about it as well, is the fact that they deserve some recognition on the home platform. Mm. Yeah, so the documentary is going to be called Born to Fly. I've seen some of the opening sequences, and they just look incredible. I mean, it's a motive. You get goosebumps. You. <laughs> Sense of nationalism just comes across. It's good. You were the and, test audience. <laughs> and, and, and we love the fact, don't we, that here's little old New Zealand on the big stage in big America and one of their big sporting events and that we are going to see the extent beyond Scott Dixon that we're going to see that it's more than just what Scotty McLaughlin is doing and just the intricacies and the subtleties and the small percentages that are required to actually win at the highest level. Yeah, well, you know, and, and these guys... They live for it as well, just as much as the drivers do. You know, for them to win a 500, say, uh, means a significant amount to them personally. Um, so it's there's the energy to drive that, if you like, as well. And, and if you look at them, the majority of them, in many cases, are New Zealanders that have migrated over to the US and will one day ultimately probably come home as well. But they've led the pathway, so they've also said. Um, there, there is a window of opportunity. Sure, it might be slightly harder to do these days because of immigration laws and things like that. But at the end of the day, they've said it can be done, just as many years ago now Scott Dixon said it could be done, and look mm. at where he is now. And you know, McLaughlin's proving that already as well, and I can almost bet you that Marcus mm. Armstrong will prove that as well. What I'm looking forward to, and you've already mentioned it, is going to be the Indianapolis 500. Yep. Four hundred thousand people on the day turn up to watch this at the Brickyard. You win it, you get to scull what a pint of milk. Yep. And Scott Dixon, I think, won it what back in two thousand and eight. Two thousand and eight hasn't won it since. Came very close last year. Yep. And just to show the enormity of that, 
because I think that is lost on a lot of New Zealanders here. It's massive. And, you know, and when it comes to handing out the gongs at the end of the year, and I probably fell into that basket initially when I first came in already. I didn't understand the magnitude of it. And I think I was going, oh, what do you mean Scott Dixon? And yes, okay, he's won the Indy, but it's not F1, only to sort of have to go, hang on a minute, mate. This is arguably bigger. This is better. This is almost harder to win. And what I'm hoping with your documentary, you show the magnitude of that, and therefore you show just how good our drivers are, just how good our people are. Well, to give you an idea, like um, the the gates officially open on race day morning at 6am in the morning and there's a cannon and fireworks and stuff that, that go off at that time. For me personally, the last few years that I've been there, I've left the hotel that I've stayed in, which is probably about 20 minutes away from the track, at four in the morning to get to the media car park in time. And most times when I've got to the media car park, it's already been full and I've parked in an overflow car park that they have. So, you know, it's it's a full-on day. It is the largest single-day sporting event in the world. There is nothing that tops it. There might be over, you know, multiple days, but not on a single day. Mm. Um, and, and there's this bunch of New Zealanders behind the scenes that are a key part of the mechanics of the yeah. whole thing. And they're proudly that too. You know, there's significant little things that a lot of these guys have. They might have the word Kiwi on their helmet or there's, I've seen one with a character of a little sheep on his helmet. Um, so, you know, the New Zealand branding, if you like, is, is there and they're very much mm. New Zealanders. And there's always a Kiwi team photo, which we're hoping to capture this year as well. And I'm sure you'll capture this, but I want to ask you now, like how big a star, when you get to Indianapolis, how big a star is Scotty Dixon? They're all big. McLaughlin is now too. McLaughlin has arrived. Anyone who underestimates that is, you know, needing to recalculate that idea. So those guys are big. McLaughlin's had a taste of what the Indy 500 is like with a crowd last year, so he knows what he's in for this year, um, as opposed to the COVID year where there was no crowd there. Mm. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're big. Very big, but they're very humble Kiwis still. David Turner, my guest in studio from Perspective Group, announcing today that a two-part television documentary is going to be made on the New Zealanders involved in the Indy cars in the United States, not just the drivers, but those people behind the scenes, those people that make up um, the intellect or the intellectual property of a large number of the big teams. David, how much access are you actually going to have? <laughs> uh, well, hopefully no one from Penske Entertainment's listening. No, we're, we're probably going to get quite a bit, actually. Like, the teams are very good. Um, I've, I've spoken to all the teams that a lot of the Kiwis are associated with already, and they're very welcoming on the fact that they know what I'm trying to do here um, and arranging interview times, you know, with all the people from the drivers to the crew. So I think that they'll be accommodating. The advantages we've got to is that we're over the multiple races. We're there for Indy Grand Prix, the 500, and then Detroit the following week after the 500. So it gives us a few chances of you know capturing stuff that we want to do. Um, Detroit will be considerably mm. different as well. And Marcus is in for two of those events. So, yeah, no, I, th I think we'll get some good access. And, and on race day, uh, yeah, as you've just said, it's about trying to um, showcase just what it's like even at 7 o'clock in the morning when you're seeing fifty or 60,000 people coming in the gates at that time of the day and the race doesn't start till noon. And these New Zealanders are behind the scenes, checking their headsets, checking yeah. their computers, looking for little glitches, monitoring, analysing the data, communicating all of that to the drivers going through their warm-up protocols, having to deal with the sponsor side of it, having to deal with the pressure of expectation and capturing all of that emotion. And you might be the driver, but the guy that, as you mentioned, those guys behind the scenes that, 
uh, calculating, looking at a lot of the data, is under as much pressure to get it right. But I, I always remember, Mark, the um, the year that Dixie won it back in 2008, and we were there doing you know the show at that stage when I was still working at, at TVNZ. And um, what surprised me at the end of the race when he won and we were standing out on the yard of bricks to interview him was the number of Kiwi flags I suddenly saw pop up in the grandstands. It's like, where the heck did these come from? And there's people waving, you know, New Zealand flags. And then there was a group of about 15 guys that came down underneath the podium after he'd, you know, drunk the milk and all that sort of stuff and started doing this impromptu haka. Mm. It's like, where did these guys come from? So there's, there's quite an interesting fan base that travels there every year. I know of a number of tour groups that go there. So, you know, it, it, again, I, I'm very lucky I got told about this event in 1996 and it does get into you there is something very special about it sure I've been to Formula 1 Grand Prix but nothing surpasses the MD500 Oh the Americans do it well too don't they they do know how to entertain they do know how to bring it to the public and more importantly what I think I like about the Americans is the fans still ultimately own the sport Yeah very much so and all the drivers and multiple sporting codes as we well know commented about how hard sport was during the COVID period where there was no fans there. And, uh, and Indy's one of those places particularly where the fans make that event. is very uniquely the way they do it. Okay, the documentary, Born to Fly. Yep. So start filming shortly, get yep. off to the United States, looking at this group of New Zealanders that are from drivers through to the technical people behind the scenes with some of the biggest um, factory teams in the world. When are we likely to see this come to air? Um, I'm just waiting to hear back from Sky Sport at the moment about it, so we're probably springing a bit of a surprise on on them in some ways. It's scheduled to go this year. It'll be in the last quarter of this year for sure. So I'm I'm picking probably around the August period on Sky Sport, and it will have multiple plays across Sky as well. It's not just a one-off screening. It'll be multiple plays to supplement what they're doing with IndyCar coverage as well. Well, well done, David Turner. 19 and a half minutes after two. Born to fly. Have we ever been in a better place in New Zealand motorsport than we are now, certainly the 1960s, the 1970s, particularly in Formula One, the likes of McLaren putting the sport in the limelight, but now right around the world, an IndyCar, United States, and it's New Zealanders who are definitely flying the flag. Documentary will be called Born to Fly. 0800 150 811. When we come back, we're going to turn it up. We're going to change it up. We're going to look at some supercars. We're going to look at Formula One. Got any questions regarding motorsport? Uh, any queries? Anything that you're not sure about? You want to talk about the Shane Van Gisbergen controversy for last week? Those lines are open. 0800 150 811. My cue, is that my cue? Is that my cue? It must be my cue. Why can't I hear myself there? Turn your headphones up, Mark. Anyway, 24 and a half minutes out, 25 minutes after two. David Turner, Mr. Motorsport in studio. We're talking all things motorsport. We've just announced that he's heading off to the States to make a documentary called Born to Fly, which is going to tell the story of all the New Zealanders heavily involved in IndyCar and will be there for the Indianapolis 500. But we're going to move things along. But if you do want to have your say, 0800 150 811. You can text us here on the Temper Bedpost text machine on double eight double three. Let's look forward to, David, the Grand Prix this weekend in Saudi Arabia. Is this just going to be a Max Verstappen procession this year? And is that a good thing for Formula One? Or do you think he can be challenged and will be challenged? I think he can be challenged. I'm hoping he's going to be challenged because otherwise it could become awfully boring, awfully fast. And Formula One as a brand doesn't need that just as much as maybe IndyCar, you can't ever guarantee a winner. Um, so you don't want that to happen in Formula One either. Um, 
you know, Red Bull have got some things that they've got to still come to terms with and the fact that they're sitting on a penalty thing from last year which limits their wind tunnel testing time. So as the season progresses, that may slide the advantage slightly towards some of the other teams. So, yeah, anything's possible. I think the dark horse in the pack right now is Fernando Alonso. Aston Martin. Yep. Um, that performance that we saw at the opening round in Bahrain for him to finish on the podium, I think, was exceptional. There's a couple of things to read into it. The car was obviously uh, very kind on its tyre wear over the race duration because the asphalt surfaces in Bahrain is, is very harsh, um, but the Aston seemed to cope with that very well. And on the long runs, Alonso came into his, his game quite well with tyre management, whereas some of the other teams struggled. Saudi's quite different because the surface is different there, so that advantage, if you like, that Aston had may diminish, um, time will tell. And also Saudi's the fastest street circuit in Formula One, so we're going to see who's got some real mojo mm. behind them. But, you know, it, it's great that there's another team challenging there. Um, Mercedes have still got quite a lot to combat uh, with their more radical design, which, you know, many people thought that they might have abandoned to go more in line with everyone else, and they haven't. They've refined that, but they've got to refine it a bit more. Uh, Ferrari have got to go overcome some reliability issues, but they still have straight line mm. speed, so that will be promising. So, no, I think we're in for a good race, and it's very demanding around Saudi. I, I want to ask you this. So you've got these Formula One cars. You're given a bit of a box. There's only so much you can do with a car. You've got all these incredibly bright people, designers and engineers that all work for these teams, mm. highest intellect, understand motorsport at the highest level. How in this day and age can one car like Red Bull still seem to be able to find a performance advantage significantly better than every other car? It's combinations of lots of things. It's the the technology in terms of how they're harnessing that to develop the car, uh, how the team itself works, how the driver works, uh, and clearly, you know, Max is a, a level above some of the others, just as Lewis is a, a level above some of the others, just as Senna was a level above most people you know so there is a there is a driver input regardless um yeah look they they have an advantage but it's cycler as well we saw that with red bull you know a few years back where they won four championships in a row with vettel and then they had this absolute drought period and mercedes were the ultimate dominant machine so it it goes in cycles the ones that haven't quite combated that has been ferrari yeah but where does the room for evolution continue and i mean well, you're talking Technology fractions of seconds. Technology and evolution slows down, doesn't it? So you, you talked about the dominance of Mercedes, and then suddenly, between seasons, they go from the penthouse to the basement. The, to the basement, yeah. And then you suddenly, as you say, you see Red Bull come through. How is there possibly? How is there in, such in, a shift? Well, in the Mercedes case, it was a, a, a conception that they had on the aerodynamics on how they were going to manage the aerodynamics of the car and the way they manage the side pods versus how Red Bull have done it. And clearly, the Red Bull way works better than the Mercedes way. It's it's kind of that simple. But um, you know, you've got to back your philosophy because these guys are spending you know hundreds of millions of dollars in development. So you can't just go, okay, well, Plan A didn't work. You've got to try and develop Plan A, and and it will continue to do that. And if you look at the competitiveness of it, you know you're still talking such small margins between all the teams on the grid. So all twenty odd drivers that are there are well and truly worthy of being there, and they're all capable of winning races. Just as much as you had twenty seven cars at St Pete for the opening IndyCar event, and of that, twenty of them in qualifying were under a second of each other. And then the ones that were outside of that, the seven that were outside of it, were only marginally outside of it. So the um, 
you're not talking tenths of seconds, you're talking thousands of seconds. And I think you and me have talked about it before where we've gone, oh, Dixon didn't qualify very well, he qualified 12th. And yet, if you look at the timing, you find that he's you know 0.0 something of a second behind the guy on pole. So, you know, all of these things come into play. With Formula One, yeah, the, the refueling strategy, it's a strategy game just as much as IndyCar is over the bigger races as well. So... Um, there's lots of parts of the puzzle, no different than America's Cup in many ways. Resurgence um, with Aston Martin in Formula One. Yeah. You mm. just talked about Carlos Sainz Jr. Yeah. How have they managed to come up to speed so quickly? Um, Lawrence Stroll, who bought the team, whose son, um, you know, drives in the team and was seen down here in the Toyota Racing Series car many years ago, I think has invested in some very smart people invested very heavily in technology and it's taken a while but maybe we're starting to see that investment pay off again these things don't happen overnight and if you look at say the formula one grid with the 20 cars and you break it down you can break it down into thirds there's a top third a middle third and a back third if you like where you know at the moment um Alpha Tories probably and McLaren are sitting, you know, and Haas is slightly ahead of them. Mm. And yet for the last few years, Haas has been at the bottom. So it, it, it's very cyclical, but it's very, very, very small margins. Uh, look, we've got to take some new sport and weather shortly, but Lewis Hamilton, pretty unhappy with the season last year, didn't like the fact, as yep. we said, he went from the penthouse basically to the <laughs> basement. Uh, you've mentioned that Mercedes is sort of stuck with their design of car. They haven't necessarily retrenched on that. But you look at the results from Bahrain. I mean, there was still f- almost 51 seconds between him and Verstappen. Where do you find that level of improvement? And how frustrating a season is it going to be for Lewis Hamilton? Well, it's interesting that all the rumours have started already. I'm wearing one race in about will Lewis stay or will Lewis leave? Um, Lewis is committed to the team if you read what Lewis says and I, I firmly believe he is and a lot of that comes down to how Toto Wolff manages the team and the development of that car and they've got to, they've got to find something and they are a team that has a resource to find it so I, I firmly believe they will. We are talking motorsport. Any questions you've got? David Turner in studio, absolute expert, absolute guru, producer, director heading over to the United States shortly to start work on a new documentary uh, looking at New Zealand's influence in IndyCup Telephone number here is 0800-150-833. You can text us here in double one three. There you go, double one three. And double eight double three is the text number. We'll bring you some news, sport and weather, and then we'll continue our discussion. The lines are open. Five minutes away from three, you're listening to SENZ. Telephone numbers 0800 150 811. You can text us here on 8833. David Turner in studio. We're talking all things motorsport. We've looked at IndyCars. We've just had a look at this weekend's round of the Formula One in Saudi Arabia. Now let's focus on the supercars. Bit of controversy last week. First round in Newcastle. Shane Van Gisbergen disqualified for putting <laughs> ice... Dry ice. Dry ice in his car doors to keep the cockpit cool, but apparently outside of the rules. Can you tell me how this is a performance enhancer other outside of other than driver safety? 
Well, it's keeping the driver cool, isn't it? So one of the things, and again, we've talked about this before, about what we do with the New Zealand Motorsport Elite Academy, and I was actually in Dunedin a couple of days ago getting ready for this year's camp that goes through there, and one of the things we do with the kids down there is about hydration and uh, putting them in a heat chamber to recreate that humidity aspect, if you like. So, And it's about how the body copes with that and what the core body temperature does. Um, and then mentally how you do it. So yes, there is an element of driver safety in there for sure because your mind does crazy things when it gets too hot. That's, there's no doubt about that. Um, my only comment on it is the fact that rules are rules and everyone knows those rules. So you've got to play by the rule book, but you play by it till you get caught and obviously they got caught. So um, there's an appeal hearing uh, for um, Shane's team to be held uh, before the next round of supercars, which is the support event at the Australian Grand Prix, so a couple of weeks away. Uh, and, you know, each side will put its case forward and we'll see how it goes. But surely there's got to be some room here because they're saying these new supercars, and we've got rid of the Ford, we've got yep. rid of the Holdens, yep. that these cars are particularly hot for the driver, much hotter than what has been previously experienced. And therefore it's a fine line between driver safety, genuine driver safety, mm -hmm. and a level of tolerance. Yeah, I think there was a couple of things that came into play there too. Newcastle was particularly hot, so you've got to take the outside ambient temperature as one thing. Then the internal cockpit temperature is obviously significantly higher. Um, there's only been limited amount of testing with the Gen 3 cars because they were all a bit late off the block, so a lot of these things probably hadn't been as heavily delved into as they would have been with the older generation car because of time that's been used with it. Um, again, a, a parallel to IndyCar, there was a lot of people said that, um, you know, the first round at St. Pete, Marcus Armstrong commented about how hot it was uh, because he hadn't raced in a, in a single-seater car with the, the aero screen around him before. Uh, but then he also said later on in a comment that I heard was, oh, it was okay. So, um, yeah, look, at the end of the day, driver safety is paramount, no matter what the sport was, whether it's Formula 1, IndyCar or V8 Supercar, and that has to be considered. Did the team do it? to deliberately gain a performance edge? Probably not, because I don't really see how you can quantify that other than looking after Shane's you know, body temperature. But, you know, that, that will come down to the Court of Appeal and how it's heard. I guess the pleasing news for Shane Van Gisbergen fans and maybe for Shane himself, and perhaps we're going to see a repeat of last year, is that he did bounce back in that second race, yep. ended up winning that, went past Chaz Mostat, 76 career win. Yeah, and he he got the the pass he made on Mostert was clean, tidy, and very well calculated. And he did it, you know, as a bit of a soul destroyer, if you were Chaz Mostert as well, because Chaz had led most of that race uh, from the second start they had, because the initial start had a problem on it. And um, you know, that's that's the the character of Shane is he has the ability to drive hard uh, when he needs to, and and that was a probably a good message from him you know, don't rule me out of this equation because I'm, I'm good at what I do. And here you go, boys, and here's a top step of the podium legitimately, if you like. Mm. Is it acceptable for drivers in situations like that at press conferences to behave the way Shane, Shane Van Gisbergen behaved in terms of basically snubbing the media uh, and being, acting a little bit petulant? Look, I, I, I don't have a... Look, I, I, look, I even play seven-a-side soccer on a Friday night at the most social league level. And I must admit, after some games, I can, you know, I've become a little um, irrational. And David, <laughs> half an hour later, I've been a little bit, like, embarrassed with perhaps my behaviour. So I can't imagine what it's like when you've raced your guts out, 
you being disqualified in circumstances which are unusual at best and arguably perhaps not fair, and then we expect these guys to sit down and be the yeah, consummate professional. I mean, don't we want a bit of colour in sport? I, I th- well, we do. You know, it's like any sport. You could look at, say, the breakers from a couple of nights ago. You've got to face up when you lose a championship, don't you, just as much as you do in, in motorsports. So there's an element of that. There's an element of um, fatigue and stress that comes in it. Uh, look, I think I don't have an opinion one way or the other on it. I think there is a, a point, though, where a driver in this instance regardless of the category of car that he's driving, and again, it's something we teach kids at the academy, is that you have to front. You actually have to front because those stickers on the car are worth thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars, and that guy expects you to front. Mm. So, yes, you have to do that. Was Shane right or wrong? Look, I, I, it doesn't worry me one yeah, way or the yeah, other, yeah. you know? And he's taking it a bit out on Mark Scaife, who, yeah. who, who's in a television role, who's in a media role, who he's come out and was... He's a former driver. ...was he critical of Shane Van Gisbergen's post-race media, but he's just simply doing his job. Um, you sort of sense that they can move on? Yeah, oh, without a doubt. And what it, what it does do, because we're talking about it right now, is it draws headlines to the series, and the series kind of needs that to kickstart its championship off. So If only it, rugby knew that. Stop know, being vanilla, have some personality. <laughs> There's only one yeah. thing worse than being talked about, and that's not being talked about. You know, so it's, it's good in that sense, just as much as whatever happens in Saudi this weekend, if Verstappen does something... Be great, you know. Well, uh, we, we, you've got to have those multiple narratives, don't you? You've yeah. got to have the narratives that set the scene, that set the stage, that get people there. We see how big the managers are in, you know, in English Premier League football. They're bigger yeah. than the players. The rivalries right. between the two. Yeah. Well, you look at even Drive to Survive and how it's turned a, a character like Gunther Steiner from Haas around to being this TV-type hero, and yet he's effectively the team principal of one of the weakest teams in the championship. You know, so it's. Uh, but, but people follow that now, and it has drawn people to it. So if you can have that same aspect, whether, again, be IndyCar or Supercar or even domestic motorsport in New Zealand, then it's worthy of um, eyeballs, and eyeballs bring more. And we've got Stephen on the phone. Hi, Stephen. Hello, lads. Stephen McCoy, Hello, lads. how are you? First time caller, long-time listener. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was intrigued to understand what, what you think of the the Shane Van Gisbergen thing. I think he had to put in context about the whole why he didn't answer the, uh, the press conference. Was he got burnt the day before by a journalist. And you know what Shane's like, and we've worked with Shane a lot. If you get on his wrong side, you're toast. But I was, I was flabbergasted at the way the questions were asked of Shane. You know, they, they basically, if you're professional, you don't go for the jugular straight away. But they went for the jugular straight away to, to create a story. And then when, when a, a journalist from Speed Cafe, a website, calls him obstinate, like publicly calls out someone like that, that's, that's actually not good journalism. It may, but it's got us talking, right? But I actually think it's a, a storm in a teacup. The, the real issue is, why didn't Red Bull and Paul Racing gin him up properly? Give him the proper thing so we know you're upset. Just do it this way and suck it up. But he's a man, he's, you know, he's, he, he's Shane, so he'll do what he wants. And he does need to learn to play the game better. But more importantly, uh, Dave, congratulations. That's fantastic news about the doco. But did you see that Ferrari on their return to hypercars? Because this weekend is the opening round of the World Endurance Series. And they've got their new Ferrari 499P hypercar. They've taken pole position ahead of Brendan Hartley and the Twitter. 
Yeah, and it's a long race, so let's just see what happens whether Ferrari are reliable or not. And you've got to remember... Oh, come on. <laughs> you've got to remember, Stephen, I worked for the Italians during the last America's Cup and temperamental uh, stuff comes into play as well. But, yeah, look, it's, it's all fantastic. Back to the, the Giz thing. What amazes <laughs> me, being a member of the media myself, just as you guys all are, is there is an element of, I think, what should be respect from the media to any athlete, regardless of the sporting code and how you conduct yourself. Yep. Um, and, and maybe that's, that wasn't exercised fully, and therefore the person who's at the back end of that can answer events how they see fit, because that's nature of the beast, isn't it? Stephen, do you yeah, I, do, Stephen, do you think there was an agenda here, a deliberate agenda that the people have been looking to try and upset Shane Van Gisbergen? Uh, I think there's a I think there's a deliberate agenda by Supercars Media to find a story, so then Fox Sports can make a, uh, another headline of it and get clickbait out of it. I think yeah, definitely, and I, and I think it's and Shane's had a gutsful. I think he's had a gutsful of the same old questions being asked the same old time, and them showing him no respect. And look, and, and by, by the way. Uh, I know you were defending Mark Scape, but let's just put this in context. He's also on the ownership group of supercars, and, oh, and yeah. I think he was—I think—I think he was primarily out of line because they want all good things said about the new car. And I'll tell you one thing: the way Shane drove in race two, it could be a very long season for everybody. Yeah, I, there's a lot riding on this Gen 3 car from, you know, what Supercar is concerned about. And obviously, Scafie's played a big part in that. So you're going to see lots of, oh, we'll call them backyard agendas, take place as well. But I think maybe, uh, you know, maybe the Aussies have had enough of the Kiwis beating them all the time. Yeah, well, it wouldn't surprise me. Look, Stephen, uh, you know how this game works. I've actually got a few ads I need to take, my good man. I'd love to keep you on. You should have probably ended up coming and hosting this show, to be honest, mate. No, 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 totally enjoyed I'm just... Super pumped, genuinely super pumped that uh, David's docker was underway. I was talking yeah. to him a long time ago, and I know the trouble. I'm, I'm absolutely genuinely excited for him. So well done, buddy. Yeah, and well, I thank you, Stephen. You know how much it means to me. And, uh, you know, I've had a couple of sleepless nights since then because I've got to work out how to deliver the damn <laughs> yeah. thing now. Yeah, if you have just joined us, uh, David Turner, who heads up Perspective Group, have announced today that they're going to partnership up with Sky Television here in New Zealand. They've got the go-ahead from Indie Cars. They're going to do a documentary on Scott Dixon, Scotty McLaughlin, Marcus Armstrong, the likes of Hunter McElray, Jacob Douglas, our drivers. But this group of New Zealanders who work tirelessly behind the scenes of some of the biggest trade teams in IndyCar. And we're going to tell that story. It's going to come out in Sky later in the year. It's going to include the Indianapolis 500. It is really going to give us a real sense of nationalism and hopefully take New Zealand motorsport to the rest of the world and just show how innovative we are and just how good we are when it comes to all things on four wheels. It is 13 and a half minutes away from three o'clock. Gull, fueling your mission. Pop into your local for some good value fuel. Gull.nz. Helping you tune out your annoying workmate. You're listening to Afternoons with Staffy on SENZ. Eight and a half minutes away from three o'clock, you're listening to SENZ. David Turner in studio. We're talking all things motorsport. Uh, 2nd of April is the next round of IndyCars. David, it has been raced in Texas. It's on the Oval. I want to ask you this. Is it a form guide to the Indianapolis 500? One word answer. No, <laughs> it's not. It's an Oval, sure. And it's, it's good to see the cars in their Oval spec as opposed to the road course spec. But... He who wins Texas doesn't necessarily guarantee the Mindy. How, how much we think of an oval? We think, well, an oval's an oval. They're all the same. But how different are oval tracks? Well, the, the oval the oval at Texas is more a triangle, 
and it's very high banked, so there's a high degree of banking on it. The oval at Indianapolis Motor Speedway is a rectangle with four corners on it and not that much banking, but it's still regarded as being an oval. And it's a super speedway, so it's 2.5 miles once around. Is, is there much in terms of setting a car up? Yep. Based on so, which which would be a harder track to set a car up on, or do they both have their challenges? They both have their challenges because of the degree of banking at Texas versus the longer straights at Indy, and where the wind and things like that come into play at Indy as well. So there's a lot of lot more variables probably at Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what? Will, but the drivers in the back of the mind will have Indy on their minds. So, yep. what will they be looking to try and take out of it? There must be some peripheral things. There must be some let's use that word learnings that they can take. Well, they're, they're getting into the gut part of the season already we're only around in and then suddenly they have this flurry of events so they've got Texas and Long Beach and Alabama and then suddenly Indy Grand Prix and then the 500 and there's a test at Indianapolis Motor Speedway in amongst all of that as well that's the form guide for Indy that's okay. what we okay. will really see okay David we've got 45 seconds left we've got people constantly switching on and off in radio we all do it we get into our cars we get out <laughs> of our cars so we've had a big announcement today something you've been working really hard on it's a documentary that you're about to go and make you're about to head to the states it's called Born to Fly in 30 seconds just summarise that again for people who have just tuned in it's going to be the story of the unsung heroes the guys behind the scenes that are Kiwis living in the states making that series what it really is but it will include clearly but it the rock includes stars the drivers. Well. It yeah. includes the rock stars. And just 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 on that, what have you made of Marcus Armstrong's start? He is a rock star in the making. Um, the team are very impressed with him. I talked to a couple of people that I know in the team, a couple of them are Kiwis, so I get the real story, and they're pleased, really pleased. Second test between New Zealand and Sri Lanka underway. Sri Lanka won the toss, have elected to field. It was a rain delay. New Zealand currently 31 without loss. Kieran, coming up after 3 o'clock, we've got the... Oh, what do what we call it? None other than the vault. The vault. Call Talk now. to me about the vault. Call now. It's got to go today. This is the uh, last edition of the vault before Staffy and Sammy reinvent. We're going to have new prizes, new everything, but call now. 0800 150 11. It's got to go today. Five you're questions gonna, gonna, and then three. You're going to run the show. Show, aren't you? I am. I am. Hey, you so know, we just had now. Stephen McIver on the telephone. I look look up on TV here in the studio, and there's Stephen McIver. He's having a bacon buddy at a motorsport event. He can't he help lives himself, the dream, mate. That man. He lives, he lives the dream. It. He lives the dream. Jumping on with Watto, having a nice know. feed. Yeah, Who could do it I better? Mean, he's got bacon and egg, and I'm hungry. Okay, we're going to talk some cycling very shortly, a charity event that's going to be staged, looking to raise an awful lot of money. We'll tell you a little bit about that shortly. That's what we're going to do this hour. We're going to head across the ditch, catch up with our SEN friends, talk a little bit of Australian sport, and they probably want to hear a little bit about New Zealand sports, and we'll do that with Jimmy Smith. Around about quarter to four, but we've got a segment that I'm going to hand over to Kieran. He's going to run this particular part of the show. It's called The Vault. Kieran. Five questions, one answer. Can you crack the vault? 
debut on the Vault Watto, I believe it is for you. No, I think I've done it once before, mate. Oh, and lucky you're not playing because I know your sporting knowledge and I know that I would not trust you t- uh, with the yes or no questions because you'd smack me out of the park in the first two. Right, how it works. Today, the Vault has got to go. So yesterday, uh, LeBron James Finn locked a moment in the Vault. I believe it was John yesterday had a stab, had uh, seven questions. Unfortunately, couldn't get it right, but he got us a long, long way. So what's going to happen? As you heard by the intro, we are starting with five questions. Now, if the first contestant gets it wrong, we're going to move on. So stay on the line. You're going to get three questions and a guess from then on. So the first listener gets five, and that first listener is Brenton. G'day, Brenton. How are you? Good, mate. Yourself? Yeah, look, I'm a bit nervous uh, filling the shoes of Steph and Sam today, but I know the moment that's locked in the vault, I had a sneak peek, I picked it, uh, and you are going to have five questions and a guess. Brenton, have you been following along with yesterday's vault? You'll be fine, mate. Um, I heard the guy who just randomly saying heaps of random sports that it was, so... Didn't really help too much, actually, to be fair. Hey, nose can always be good. It eliminates it. So I hope you've uh, done a bit of study and you've got an idea on your head because, Brenton, yeah. I am ready for you to ask away. Okay. I don't know. I can't remember all the things he said, but um, is this a sporting event in the Southern Hemisphere? No, it is not. This got something to do with uh, male New Zealand sports team. A male New Zealand sports team. A men's sports team. Does it have something to do with that? A men's New Zealand sports team? No. Oh, it could be women though, couldn't it? Um... Key words in there, Brenton. I gave you a clue. Question three. Is this an individual New Zealand sports person? Brenton, I shouldn't reveal my secrets because, yes, it is. Is this... Did he say a year yesterday? I think he said a year yesterday. Did he? Okay, so it's New Zealand sports individual... Performance in the Northern Hemisphere. Is this in America? Yes, this did take place in America. Okay, I've got a little thing. Is this. Last question before I guess. Does this person use sporting equipment rather than a ball? Could I get that question again? Sorry, Brenton. Does this individual person use sporting equipment rather than a ball? Or are they, yeah, but... Like, I know, it's an individual. Wait a second, I'll, t- I'll cancel that. Is this sporting individual use... <sighs> the pressure's on, I can feel it cooking. This is hard, man. Watto's in there, bloody shaking. I've got one person in mind. Okay, well, tell us who it is. No, hang on. Is it? Okay, go on, Brenton. Yes or no question, please. Final question before I guess. Uh, 
this a golf-related person? Golf-related? Yeah. No. Brenton, I need a guess oh, from you. Hold on. Okay, I don't actually know an individual thing in the States. I'm going to say... Is it... Oh, I don't even know. Anyway, I'll just say Stephen Adams playing for the Grizzlies. I don't know. All right, Brenton, All I'm going to chuck it in the vault and see what comes out the other side. Access denied. Access denied. What a caller one. So we move on to Ted in Hamilton. Fair play, Brenton. By the way, fair play, mate. Ted, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks, Karen. How are you? Very, very well, thank you, Ted. Uh, if you heard before, you've got three questions and a guess for me. So uh, if you'd like to kick us off and get us underway, I'd be more than happy to answer your yes or no questions. Okay, is this an Olympic sport? It is. Did the event happen in 1984? No, it did not, Ted. Did the event happen in 1988? No, it did not, Ted. I'm going to have to get a guess off you straight away. He was right in. He came in hot. Hey, hey, Ted, I'm going to say it's an Olympic sport, but it wasn't at the Olympics. Sammy would have your head there, would I? Oh, we're going to spend an hour otherwise because everyone's <laughs> going to think it's an Olympic bloody game. Ted, I'm going to have to ask you for a guess. Okay, I want to say um, uh, Alison Rowe winning the New York, New York Marathon in 1981. Chucking it in the vault as we speak. Oh, oh I'm going to have to go for a quick fire here. Unfortunately, Ted, you are not correct in the vault, but I, I'll tell you what, I felt a little twinge. Uh, I think this leaves us with two more callers, 0800-150-811. If these don't go... Oh, boy, I think he was one digit off then. Boy, oh I think boy. he was one digit off. He was, what oh, He was indeed. He was very close, Ted. We're going to take our talents down to the wonderful Manawatu and catch up with Kerry. Kia ora. Yeah, how are you? Very good, mate. I'm actually a bit nervous. I need three questions and a guess from you, Kerry. Fire away. Sorry, Kerry, I've just I've I've misheard you there. Could you speak up a little bit for me, please? Is it equestrian? Is it equestrian? Good question. Left field, unfortunately no. Is it rowing? Is it rowing? No, it is not rowing. One more question. Cycling. Kerry, it is not cycling. So in another turn of events, I'm going to have to ask you for a guess. I'm going to go... Uh, Ken Ferguson winning the Canoe K1 World Champ. OK. Rightio. I'll chuck that in the vault and we'll see what comes out on the other side. Access denied. Watto, I, I can see you looking at me thinking, mate, this is going to go on for days and days. But Well, I'll say, was it Ted that got very close to me? There was. Ted, Ted, Ted got, got very Ted close. Ted got so incredibly close, but he just didn't quite quite get it right. But, but he Watto, was, he one was, thing he that was I need you to know. scorching hot, mate. We've got the last man on the line now, and he's after revenge. 
John from Christchurch. Talk to me, John. How are you feeling after yesterday? <laughs> it was too bad, actually, but I tell you what, there's quite a few of those guesses of all the things that I was going <laughs> <laughs> Hey, your nose yesterday got us a long way, so let's see if today's ones can. John, I'm going to have to ask you for three questions and a guess, so far away, my friend. Radio. So is it athletic or is it running? It is running. Yeah, okay. Does it um, involve Rod Dixon? It does involve Rod Dixon. Yeah, okay. So um, now I'm probably a bit blase um, on the um, on what uh, event it was, but um, was it Rod Dixon winning the Boston Marathon or the... Yeah, maybe the Boston Marathon. I'm not... Well, one of those big marathons anyway, but I'll, I'll go... Um, I think it's got to be the Boston, is it? Because I don't know if it's one in New York. Um, you don't? Oh. John, do you want to... John, how about... Oh, look, look, look. I'll tell you about what, John. John, I will bail you out. I'll no, bail you, you out. You've got sorry, one more question. Say, say that, John. What, what did you yep. just say? Can I just say, is it in 1983? Actually, did this event happen in 1983? Yes. Okay. Righto. So, is that him... Um, and won the New York City Marathon in 1983. Well, let's put that bad... John, let's dip. just put that bad boy in the vault and see what comes out. Let's hope, eh? Oh. oh, go on. Rod Dixon's in sight. Rod Dixon in sight. There's Jeff Smith coming over the last rise. Dixon, a tremendous competition here in New York, 1983. Rod Dixon sprinting home to the finish. Rod Dixon, a spectacular racing effort. There you go, John. Only led the race for 180 summit yards. Jeff Smith ran him down. Greatest New York marathon in history, 1983. Whole nation stopped two years earlier. It was Alison Rowe. Brilliant. Outstanding. That's really cool. And what an athlete he was. Eh? What a great New Zealander also. Yeah, bronze medal in the 1500 metres, 1972. Fourth in the 5,000, 1976. Third at the World Cross Country Championships. Remarkable athlete. Awesome. It's actually really cool. What are they? You're the one on. You're an athletics man, mate, and we have an athletics way to finish the vault, mate. It's fantastic. All he definitely stuff. didn't pay us for that, John. No, I didn't <laughs> even know that the chosen... <laughs> I, I stay in touch with Rod a bit, and I've interviewed him a number of times, but I wasn't even aware that they'd chosen Rod Dixon this week, so you couldn't get a better one. Love it when he crosses the line, kisses terra firma, looks to the heavens, raises his arms in a V, and that was really the relief of getting the monkey off his back for that, if only, from 1976 when he finished fourth behind Quacks and Lasse Verin in that 5,000-metre final race. He probably should have won. No, very cool. Very, very yep. cool. Awesome. John, uh, you can definitely now go down in the history books. One of the greatest revenge stories, comeback kid, I'm going to call you now, John, personally. So thank you very much for participating in the vault. That $100 bonus bet is all yours, thanks to our mates at the TAB. Watto, I'll tell you what, uh, Rod Dixon may have won the New York Marathon, but I feel like I've just run one after that vault. So. <laughs> 20 miles of hope, 6 miles of truth, mate. There's never a truer word spoken. I've seen guys leading the marathon at 31 kilometres and sitting in the gutter at 35. All right, I'm going to go get me a Gatorade. I don't know about you. Yeah, no, we're going to take a break. We'll come back and we'll talk some cycling. We'll talk our fundraising event. Not quite as good looking as Mark Stafford. Mark Watson with you. With you through to 4 o'clock this afternoon before we do throw it over to the drive crew. Telephone number's 0800 150811. You can text us here on 8833. We're just trying to get hold of uh, David McKenzie from Hanley's Farm, a charity that's looking to raise money for kids in need. It's a cycling event that's taking place in the South Island. David is a former 
racing cyclist. Um, he won the Australian National Road Race title in 98. His biggest victory came on stage seven of the 2000 Giro d'Italia, where he rode to victory after a 164-kilometre solo breakaway. He's also won the Goulburn to Sydney Classic. So hoping to talk a little bit of cycling, why these guys are embarking on a seven-day, 1,000-kilometre ride in the name of raising significant funds. So we'll try and get hold of Dave and try and bring that to you shortly. Uh, interesting, just going back to the whole Rod Dixon scenario, 1983. What a great year that was. 1983, I think we might have beaten the Australians in rugby league, which was a big deal at the time. Richard Hadley might have ended up winning the Halberg Award that year. Chris Lewis became the first unseeded player to reach a Wimbledon final. Played the great John McEnroe, lost in straight sets, but the wonderful semi-final against the great Kevin Curran of South Africa. Had to get past Roscoe Tanner the big serving American who had the fastest serve in the world at the time. Great year, 1983. But New York City Marathon. Jeff Smith and Dixon. He just cut the tangents, ran every single little corner. Smith stuck in the middle of the road, pulled back 80 metres in doing so and as they say, the rest is history, coming up to the 40th anniversary of the event this year. Interesting, talking to Rod Dixon, I remember interviewing him, he's telling me that in, he was 18 years of age, living in Nelson, 1968, and he was listening to the 1500-metre final in Mexico City, Kip Kano winning it. And then four years later, he found himself at the Olympic Games. And would end up winning a bronze medal himself. And then along came John Walker and there was Dick Quacks, of course, and made the final of the 1974 Commonwealth Games 1500 metre final and won by the great Philbert Bay, a world record. Walker went under the existing world record as well. And Rod Dixon says to me, he goes, Mark, I ran the fifth fastest time in history and I finished fourth. <laughs> You think, yeah, you did. You ran the fifth fastest time in history over 1,500 metres and you finished fourth in a race. One hell of a race, wasn't it? Yeah, remarkable, remarkable. Equally, you go back to the Alison Rowe winning in 1981 and they're just moments that stopped a nation. Tell you the other thing, 1983, we won the World Championships in the rowing eight, didn't we? 82 and 83, and then we sort of didn't quite live up to the expectation and the hype at the 1984 Olympics and didn't actually end up meddling. Anyway, if you want to have your say, 0800 150 811. Big weekend of Super Rugby to look forward to. Blues take on the Crusaders at Eden Park. Too early in the season to probably call this an all-black trial. Looking forward to Jack Goodyear in midfield up against Roger Tuivasa-Shek and Rico Awani. I'm still not convinced Rico Awani is a centre. I think you need a little bit more intellect. I think you need to be a bit better defensively and you certainly need to know how to feed your outside backs. And I think he's deficient at times. Roger Tuivasa-Shek, so far so good through three rounds. Got to continue on the improvement curve. 
How did the Crusaders play this? If they do what they did in the Super Rugby final last year, how does Auckland react? How did the Blues react? They were basically suffocated last year in that final. They weren't allowed to play. I think it's fair to say that Leon McDonald was outcoached by Scott Robertson. There were 20 All Blacks in action at Eden Park on Saturday night. That Blues team, Stephen Perifetta at fullback, Mark Talia on the right wing, Awani Tuivasa-Shek in midfield, Caleb Clark, Manabit Grammarboy on the left wing, Bowden Barrett, then we've got Finlay Christie, Hoskins Tutu out of Sacred Heart, Dalton Papalihi, Adrian Choate, interesting, got him ahead of Tom Robinson. And then their locks, and this is where my concern is, Cameron Suafawa and James Tucker. Then you've got James Late, Ricky Riccatelli, another Mags boy, and Alex Hodgman. Another man over grammar boy on the bench. I love man over grammar, so I always throw it in. Do you, Otto? Sayoni Fakina is the backup hooker. He's a Mags boy. Jordan Lay. Then another man over grammar boy. And Nepo Laulala, who actually had three years at Mags and one year at Wesley. Just thought I'd throw that one in there. Why not? If you work in a bank, you've got fringe benefits. You probably get slightly better interest rates. So I work in radio. I can talk about my old school. Zahn Sullivan, Bryce Heem. Some really good subs to come on off the bench. Then you go through the Crusaders, Fergus Burke. We know he's a first five, so we know he can kick. Good under the high ball. Sevu Reese, Braden Enor, Dallas McLeod. Okay, so no Jack Goodyear. Lester Fayanganuku on the left wing. Made the All Blacks last year and just didn't get a chance to play. Let me guess, they probably got him resting at some point because he was an All Black last year, even though he never played. Richie Mawanga at first five. Then you've got Mitchell Drummond. Sione Havili at eight. Tom Christie at seven. Ethan Blackout, what a player. He's the one guy you don't want getting injured this year. Sam Whitelock, Scott Barrett. Very good locking combination. Tamati Williams, Cody Taylor and Joe Moody. On the bench, you've got McAllister, Kershaw, Sykes, Martin, George Bauer, Zach Gallagher, Christian Leowili, Willie Hines, who actually played for England, Pepasana Patafilo, don't know much about him, and Maka Springer. So I'd say the Blues have probably got the strength on the bench. I don't know, I just... I think I like the balance of the Crusaders team better than I like the balance of the Blues team. I'm not sure the Blues have played that well through three rounds, have they? Fascinating encounter. Do we see Bowden Barrett sort of sit back in the pocket and kick and try and play the Crusaders game, or do we let him run? Does he play with a little bit more instinct? Does Hoskins Satudu get the ability to run and roam like he did last week against Wellington or against the Hurricanes? I'm the Crusaders, you target the Blues locks, you target their forward pack. Don't underestimate Alex Hodgman though, good footballer. Interesting, he did make the All Blacks a few years ago, Alex didn't really enjoy his time in the All Blacks, I understand. And it was funny that under guys like Plumtree, Alex asked some questions, he would challenge the coaches, they took that as being um, less agreeable, and he hasn't been picked since which I think is appalling. Maybe I'm just being a little bit biased. 
29 minutes after three, we'll bring you some sports news, news and weather here on SENZ. Here's what happened back in the day. Love my nostalgia. 1996, the Sri Lanka win at the World Cup. They beat Australia by 47 wickets on this day. The game was played in Lahore. Mark Taylor top scored for Australia with 74 runs. Australia finished their innings 241 for seven. After a shaky start, the Sri Lankans took 46 overs to reach the target, finishing the day 245 for three. Man of the match, Arafinda De Silva scored 107, not out. That's it, all the way to the boundary for four. What a victory for the Sri Lankans. A fantastic effort by them. Their players are charging out onto the ground. The Aussies shaking them by the hand. Yeah, well done to Sri Lanka. It's interesting, Kieran. I remember watching Sri Lanka tour here for the first time in 1983, and they were awful. I think I was. You had guys like Dilip Mendes, I think, playing for Sri Lanka. I always remember Jeff Crow hitting a six at Eden Park to bring up 300, which was the first time I think 300 was scored in a one-day game. I'd be negative 22. And then, literally, what are we talking? 13 years later, they win a World Cup, and we still haven't won one. Boy, they've been good for cricket lately, haven't they? Doing well in recent times for some of their players. Anyway, let's continue. On this day back in 1999, Atlanta head coach, so we're talking NBA, Lenny Wilkins coached his 2051st NBA game, surpassing Bill Fitch to become the NBA's all-time leader in games coached. Since 1969, Wilkins had coached in the NBA in Seattle, Portland, Cleveland, Atlanta, Toronto and New York. He guided the Seattle Supersonics to the NBA Championship in 1979 and Team USA to Olympic gold in 1996 in Atlanta. Oh, no clip. No clip. I thought you were going to play me some uh, that's the Lenny bit in, Wilkins. The bit in red there. Oh, is it? Yeah, we love it. But Lenny, what a legend. Supersonics, bring them back, I say. I say, yeah. I, I tell you what, that stuff's... Um, well, that sort of clothing and memorabilia has become quite in vogue, hasn't it? Quite iconic. Right, birthdays. 1914. They would have turned 109 today. They died in 2008. Sammy Bauer, is it? Football Hall of Fame quarterback. Really? Brilliant. Love it. 1959. Danny Ainge. NBA guard. Remember the man. 1964, turning 59 today, Lee Dixon, former England football defender. 1981, Kyle Corver, NBA shooting guard. Golfer Aaron Badley. Remember him when he was at the Australian Masters or Australian Open when he was about 17, the gold jacket. Done some good things, but never really kicked on. Turning 42, mind you, he's probably loaded. He was born in 1981 on this day. A lot of basketball, a lot of NBA in this. Composed by Finn James himself. Finn James, Mr. Basketball himself. I love it, man. Stick to your passions. Next time have Liverpool Football Club in here, please. Number one movie back in 1995 was Outbreak. What's that about? Was that like COVID? Predicted it. It's forward the future. Is it? No. Outbreak. It's COVID. Okay, and the number one song. Cotton Eye Joe. Rednecks. Love it. Keep it going. Oh, yeah. 
should play this at the Canterbury Games. The Village of the Damned. Family trees a straight line. Watto, can I ask you a question off the back of this song? No, but I was just saying, I'm taking the mickey out of the Crusaders and the Canterbury people. That's what we don't have in this country anymore. Oh, what? We don't have the angst between Auckland and Canterbury anymore. We need to bring it back. We need to get that tribalism that used to exist in sport. That's how you get bums on seats. That's how you get high levels of engagement. You know, they should name the stadium down in Christchurch. They're building Carlos Spencer Field. Did you know the um, Blues team? Did you know the Blues team from 2003 that won the Super Rugby Championship are having an anniversary in Auckland today and tomorrow? So it's players like Ali Williams, Lee Stensonis, Carlos Spencer, Joe Rockathoko, and arguably, arguably, maybe the best Super Rugby player that's ever played, Rupeni Thalthawambutha, the Fijian. True story. They're paying for his airfare over here paid for his passport and before he flew over the last photo of Rupini Thalthau and Butha was him bareback on a horse trying to get to the airport to fly back the great Fijian Rupini Thalthau and Butha YouTube this boy mate what a player they had to have a minder Steve Devine was telling me this on Wednesday night they had to used to have a minder for him to make sure he could get out of bed to get to training but you talk about a freak, one of the great players. Dougie Howlett in that side. Mills Milayina was in that team. Great side, get emotional thinking about it. But we do need to bring the tribalism back. We need to be putting the boot in the Cantabrians. The Cantabrians need to be putting the boot into the Aucklanders. You know, We've got to have it. We've got to have it back. Well, if they want this Auckland FC, Wellington Phoenix rivalry, I think it's the same thing. Bring yeah, it back. It's friendly. It's you know, sporting. They hated Carlos it's, Spencer. It's, it can't we... sit off there. They had a Carlos Spencer. We always thought Reuben Thorne and Todd Blackadder were missing in action and you'd have to send the SAS in to find them at the bottom of a ruck. You know, these are Boo Mark Carter and Grant Fox, but it's gone now. You've got to have it. As long as it's at a sporting level, you know. That's what it is. It's like the whole NPC and Heartland chat we had from before, isn't it? It's playing for pride. Yeah, but it's just all gone now. Everything's so vanilla. Everything, you know, no one says anything anymore. And yeah, you've got to have that narrative. People like a bit of confrontation. People like the negative. I'll say this all the time, Kieran. Pick up a newspaper and guess what? Man's defeats are on the front pages. Man's victories are on the back. We do. We love a train wreck. Did you know that crime in the United States is the lowest it's actually been? Violent crime in America is the lowest it's actually been since 1961 when crime was really, really low in America. But we have this perception that it's incredibly high. And that's not actually the case. What we've actually seen is just a proliferation in the reporting of violent crime because people soak it up. And this is my challenge to sports organisations. We try and dumb everything down. Oh, we've got to take this out of the game. We've got to try and target families. No, target mankind's flaws. Don't try and make out that we're all holier now, that we're all sanctimonious, that we're all somehow of the highest moral standing. We're flawed. We love a scrap. We love a bit of bad language. We love a little bit of colour. Market to that and you will get bums on seats. There's a punch up in State of Origin. Everybody stands, don't they? Anybody. Right, we're going to head across to Australia very shortly. You're listening to SENZ.
Okay, welcome back into SENZ. In around about 15 or 10 seconds' time, we're going to cross the ditch, catch up with Jimmy Smith, talk cocoa water, talk sport, talk all those wonderful things. Always enjoy chatting with our Australian cousins. Have we got Jimmy there? Yeah, you got me loud and clear here, mate. How are you, Jimmy? You all right? I'm very well. Just to clarify, Coco Magic. Thanks very much. Coco Magic. Love my Coco Magic. No, seriously, like I, I still consider myself an athlete and I don't put two-stroke in a Ferrari, but I put Coco Magic in it. Hang on, hang on. Um, bing! <laughs> Tell you what, it's great, for you, it's great for your skin, isn't it, Coco Magic? I'm glowing. I know, I heard you were 74 and look at you. you I know. at least 68. That's I know. magnificent. And I take the wedding ring off and I feel a bit, I take the wedding ring off and I'm about 40. <laughs> we're all like that. Now, can, can you... Um, I've done a bit of reading on you, but we're getting some text messages here saying Mark was a mid to high level athlete, Ironman slash triathlon sort of thing. Is that right? Oh, I spent a lot of time at the highest level in the sport. Um, I was probably not so good on race day. I was really good in training and I was very privileged (laughs) to train with some very, very good guys, including your own Chris McCormack and a few guys over the years, but never quite eventuated on race day. But I had some good days and spent a lot of my career with the guy Cameron Brown over here, who's won Ironman New Zealand 12 times and podium four times in Hawaii. But yeah, probably a has-been that never was, to be honest. Um, I I, I was, yeah, I I was, um, what do you call him, a bit of a journeyman or or a sparring partner. You don't realise how much we've got in common then. <laughs> Talking about being a journeyman. Hey, a mate of mine is very good mates with, and I've met him a number of times, and I hope he doesn't mind me telling this yarn, but Craig Alexander, you would have heard of. Crowy, yeah. Yeah, Crowy. Just, I think he, did he win three? Three Hawaii's, yep. And, and the first time he did it, he ran second because he blew himself out. He didn't quite understand the nuances of the event, but he blew himself out. Anyway, this mate of mine was uh, having dinner with him one Saturday night in Sydney. And he said, what are you doing tomorrow? And he said, having a couple of wines. And he said, what are you doing tomorrow? He goes, oh, doing the city to surf. He goes, what? He goes, yeah. He said, after this? He goes, yeah, yeah. He ran third. Mm. Oh, no. No, remarkable athlete, Craig Alexander. In fact, Hamish Carter, who won the Olympic Games gold medal, had a bit to do with in 2004, said that Craig was probably the best athlete he had seen. Um, And to win Hawaii, you've got to be special. I mean, it's a race that's so much greater than the sum of its parts. Um, I've been lucky enough to go up there and compete at it three times myself. But, you know, the old marathon, you know, swim and bike for show, run for dough, 20 miles of hope, six miles of truth, man. And I can tell you what, it's a lonely place. It knows no names, knows no reputations. You can't hide behind, say, 
14 other, 15 other guys in a rugby team or in a league team or in a football team, you know? So, yeah, no, lonely, lonely place if it falls apart. But, yeah, one hell of an athlete. And, boy, your history in that sport has been remarkable. You know, I was, I was lucky enough and, you know, to see Greg Welch up there in 93, 94 yeah. do well, and he was the first non-American to win it. Greg Welsh was a guy who used to run the sand hills down at Cronulla, and everyone going up these, like they're almost, you know, just going straight up, would put their hands, like use their hands. And Greg Welsh was the first one to go up with not using his yeah, hands. Yeah, now, one, just, one, wonderful personality, Greg Welsh, one of the real characters. And I tell you what, um, boy, what a rich history you have in that sport for both the men and the women. And But, but you know, look, I've spent time, we used to spend time in Burley Heads training for the Hawaii Ironman, and you'd go down to Miami pool and there would be Dennis Cottrell on the side of the pool with the likes of Michael Klim and Grant Hackett. And it was like clear blue skies at six o'clock in the morning. It's just <laughs> such a conducive environment. There's no wonder yes. you guys are a powerhouse in sport. It's funny. Well, don't worry. You this I don't know what this is a love fest, but you guys go all right as well. I remember being over in England playing footy over there and the English people who say, what do you think it is? Why are you so good at sport? And, I think have a look around. Like this is the most depressing job <laughs> on the planet. But um, anyway, hey, um, best time for you, Hawaiian Ironman. Oh, we won't go. We won't go there. Come on, mate. No, no, we won't go there. I don't want to go there. Oh, second, okay. ki- oh, I was second New Zealand at home. How's that? All right, okay, that's fantastic. I'm going to go. Do you know? Um, is it what's the name of the show? Rob Bruff. Where he goes higher or lower? What's that one? I'm oh, hi- go, yeah, no, no. Yeah. I, 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 look, I, I, I think we should just, I think we should just move on. Um, okay, okay. Oh, look, I'm going I, I, I had five some, hours, I had some, I had some. hours, fifty-two minutes. What for the swim? No, I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you are you there? Like when you get in, do you turn the lights off and shut the gate and everything when you get back to? The- at the end of the race? Yeah, yeah. I, I just sit there and depressed because everyone used to say to me, look, if you get it right, mate, we're all in trouble. But as I say to people, like, talent's one thing, but you've got to redefine the definition of talent. I was really good in some areas, but I just wasn't good on race day. I put myself under too much pressure, didn't quite have it mentally. Um, and I was so nervous a week out that by the time I got there, I never really wanted to be there. But, um, you know, look, it was a privilege being alongside a Cameron when he got second a couple of times, a couple of thirds. I was lucky enough to go on and um, run the high-performance program in southern France with the Olympic guys between 205 and 208. So, yeah, you know, I I, I can get depressed, but I I wouldn't change any of it. I loved every minute of it. So, Mark, how many athletes on the planet do you reckon? And I'm I'm hearing what you're saying there, saying that, you know, everything was right except basically your mental approach to it, right? You needed to change that. How many athletes on the planet get to 35, 40, 45, and if they'd have reached that level of maturity, yeah, mentally they would have been ph- more phenomenal sports people. I reckon it's ninety eight percent. Well, it's interesting. You know, I look now, and I still swim and run a lot, and I'm just trying to sort of get back into some sort of shape, more for sort of just mental health and balance these days. But it's interesting. I feel like if I took my mindset that I have now and had I've had it when I was in my twenties, I think I could have done something really special. Yeah. Like I think if I went out and raced now. The stars would align. I'd understand it. I would know how to play the game better mentally. And yep. yeah, and then I think the athletes that do well at a young age are well ahead of their years. They have this maturity. They have this almost intuitive understanding that for a lot of us comes a lot later with life experience or, you know, I mean, I always say you learn how to lose to learn how to win. But for some athletes, they just come up to speed a lot quicker. Intuitive understanding or innate belief. Like they just don't even question. Yeah, and I think just... so, I think sometimes too, you just get athletes that are not that complicated, 
And, yeah. you know, sometimes they're criticised maybe for their personality off the field, but I think it's a fact they're not complicated. It allows them just to be... Keep it simple. We had an athlete here in New Zealand, Daniel Loder. Daniel won two Olympic yeah. Games gold medals in 96 and the two in the 400. And I say this to people, what people don't realise is Ian Thorpe didn't manage to do that in 2000 because he was beaten by Vanden Hugenbahn in the 200. And it took him to 2004. And I'm not sure that Loder got the credit he deserves here because he was a little introverted, because people couldn't relate to him, because he didn't have the personality of, say, a Sarah Ulmer, one of our famous female cyclists. Yeah. But the reality is, yeah. if you had to change Danyan off the water, I think he would have lost the genius in the water. And I think yeah. that's that fine line. Mm. More of the Mark Watson story coming up <laughs> next week when we cross to SEN. I thought we were going to talk cricket, rugby league. I had all this oh, other stuff lined up, and it's about yeah. me. You know what we do? We talk whatever we talk. Mate, we've got to fly, but great to check in, Mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, don't Google those Hawaii times. <laughs> Seven and a half minutes away from four o'clock. What just happened there, Karen? What just you happened? Got the there? Jimmy Smith special. I got the Jimmy Smith with the cocoa water. I love my cocoa water. Cocoa magic. Cocoa magic. Same Fuels thing, you. isn't it? Like gull, fueling your mission all year round. All year. Yeah. Yeah. Do we need to take a break, mate? We do. Should we do that now? We should. Yep.